You're listening to Metamodernism, a podcast produced by the Golden Age Collection, a 501c3 digital media archive, elevating the state of the industry for 2020 and beyond. We are based out of sunny San Francisco, California. people of earth welcome back to metamodernism i hope you all are doing well it's been nearly two months since we last talked i know i certainly didn't think it would take this long so i appreciate you waiting around for episode number two curating the golden age collection ended up taking up more of my time than i had initially anticipated in the month of may i added over 45 days worth of new content so you can imagine the amount of metadata i had to slog through in order to make that happen but I'm glad to be back on the mic, and I'm excited to present to you my conversation with Adrian Marcello. While you may not yet be familiar with Adrian's work, I'm sure you soon will be. Adrian is the hardest working and most prolific screenwriter I personally know. He draws upon his diverse life experiences to craft personal stories that both intrigue and inspire. One of his scripts was set to go into production before the pandemic hit, but obviously plans have been delayed. If one of his projects doesn't get picked up soon, I'm calling it now, you're going to see his name on the blacklist in the next few years. He's a person for which I have much respect, so I'm honored he took time to stop by the podcast for an in-depth conversation about his life, writing process, what inspires him, and the industry as a whole. In the first episode, I talked about my desire to shed light on countercultural issues. So it's ironic that we spend a good 20 minutes or so talking about Disney's sad state of affairs. But last I checked, hipsters revel in irony, so I think I'm in the clear. Besides, counterculture can only exist in relation to culture, so it's important to step back and talk about the bigger picture. This conversation was recorded in two parts and clocks in at over three and a half hours. I had considered releasing this as a two-parter, but this is an on-demand medium, and you all know how to use the pause button. So because this is a longer episode, rather than the usual monologue up top, I'm just going to keep it short and jump right into it. So enjoy my conversation with Adrian Marcello. have you start at the beginning if that's okay with you uh just talk to me a little bit about you know your upbringing where you were born uh your family life all that sort of stuff uh yeah so i was born in mexico i was only there for just a few years i was very little when we actually moved to the u.s so i'd say more american eyes than anything i am a citizen of both mexico and the u.s but you know since i didn't go to school over there and i mainly grew up here you know with english schooling and everything like that i would say more American than Mexican in that sense. But, you know, I do speak Spanish amongst family. So that's kind of my background there. Um, So, yeah, mainly in the U.S., lived quite a few states. Uh, So first we lived in Washington, then we went to Colorado, then California. And that's mainly where I spent most of my time. And that's where I graduated high school. And then from there, I kind of lived in New York for a year. So upstate up in Rochester, because I was there for school for a year. Uh, I didn't actually, you know, complete a degree or anything, but I was there for some time. Then, you know, a mix of living in Ohio, Washington, and now Idaho. So I've kind of been all wow. over. You've definitely seen my... more of the U.S. than I have. Uh, you know, I've, I've lived in only Michigan and California. 
for the most part. And it's so cool to see you uh, be able to, to jump around. Now, was that uh, something that was, you know, work related, school related, family? You just kind of hopped around? Yeah. So the first couple of states were all definitely family related until we you know, kind of settled in California for a bit. So I was there from third grade up until graduation. So I consider that my home state uh, since that's where I did most of my school and graduation. So I grew up there. Nice. And then I went right afterwards to Rochester. So New York for about a year at uh, University of Rochester. Didn't work out. Um, it was kind of a time where I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to study, what I wanted to do. And I didn't feel like spending all that money uh, for something that I wasn't sure about. Mm-hmm. So I left. And then from there, then kind of traveling around for different uh, either, you know, work or family, just whatever was easiest and uh, best financially. And yeah. that's what I kind of decided from there. Totally. Uh, so I'm kind of curious about specifically when you were growing up, uh, you know, what was the dynamic like in your in your household? Did you have uh, siblings or anything like that? Uh, yeah, so I'm the middle child. So I have a younger brother and an older brother. So I was right there in the middle. Um, so it's always an interesting dynamic being the one in the middle. So you yeah. don't have, you know, the the pressure of being the oldest to set, you know, the responsibility or the, uh, you know, example, or you're also not the youngest. So yeah, definitely interesting there. So um, yeah, the one thing that is interesting is so Mexican family grew up in the U.S. So whenever I speak with my parents, it's in Spanish. And then whenever <laughs> I speak with my brothers, it's actually in English. So it's an interesting <laughs> mix of Amongst my brothers, we speak English, and then with parents, it's Spanish. Nice, nice. Now, uh, what did your parents do? Uh, was your dad kind of moving around with different jobs? Yeah, my dad's an electrical engineer, so he's moved around for different positions. Uh, my mom, she was more of a stay-at-home mom, so taking care of us and raising us that way. Nice. That's awesome. And are they uh, still in California then? Uh, no, no, my uh, parents, they, so my dad lives in Ohio, so that's where he's kind of at, and now my mom also lives in Idaho. Oh, cool. When you were in high school, what were you like? What stuff did you like? Uh, were you into film at the time? I mean, when did that all start for you? Yeah, so I've always actually, you know, been interested in movies as a kid. You know, my earliest memories would be putting on a Jurassic Park VHS and being both terrified and excited by it. Uh, I didn't really get into it, you know, seriously until eighth grade and ninth grade when um, at my school. So my school was a charter school that did both. Uh, they actually did elementary through high school. Uh, they had an elective for digital filmmaking. And that's when I started, you know, really learning about production and, you know, shooting, editing and stuff like that. And that's where I really decided that that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I've been trying to do since. Um, ever since taking that class. And so I took that class for two years. And then I was a TA along with a, my best friend at the time. We were TAs for that class up until graduation. So I was that was kind of my environment for school. I wasn't involved in really like sports or that many outside clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, besides, I did do uh, ROTC for a couple of years. Um, oh, cool. For uh, yeah, junior year in high school. But yeah, mainly it was that film class and that film elective that was what kept me uh, busy and excited. Yeah, that's so awesome that you had like a film class in high school because uh, not a lot of you know people have access to that level of you know schooling until later, maybe in college or something like that. Uh, so to have that specificity uh, coming into high school must have been so cool. Um, I am curious uh, about specifically when you uh, started looking into film and you know editing and those sorts of things. Was it uh, a Final Cut? Did you use uh, Adobe? Like, what programs were you using to, to go about that? 
We uh, So our school, it was kind of a, an interesting transition period because when that class first started at my school, they were still kind of using old editing techniques, and we were barely starting to get uh, old Macs. So we started with um, something called Screenplays. I'm not actually too familiar with what the actual console was called, but it was like an editing PC machine that I don't remember too well. So it was kind of like just a dedicated editing bay system. And then from there, we moved on to just regular iMovie. So, you know, just basic, you know, cutting, uh, learning how to assemble stuff into a one short that flowed. So nothing too fancy with like After Effects and effects stuff like that. Just basic, you know, cutting and assembly. Yeah, totally. I think it's really cool to be able to have exposure to those tools at that age and to kind of, you know, it definitely sounds like for you, it really sparked your passion for the art of filmmaking and just kind of getting involved with that. So you mentioned Jurassic Park as being one of those movies that really inspired you. Uh, was there something just about like the special effects or just uh, what what made it uh, stand out to you? Yeah, definitely, you know, just the special effects aspect of it, you know, obviously at that age seeing, you know, dinosaurs in such a photorealistic way almost is very impressionable because you know you're used to you know seeing because at the time you know remember the land before time oh, yeah. uh, movies like, with animated dinosaurs so seeing them in this way was obviously a very lasting impression and then since then they've pretty much held up they look even better than the modern jurassic world movies that come out so yeah definitely a, a very impressionable movie and it, it came out in my birth year so it's always been kind of a special film to me yeah, totally. And there's something about the practical effects versus, you know, the CGI digital effects of the newer films. Uh, you know, there there is this, you know, realism to it as a result of them physically using animatronics and things like that, uh, which I think makes it really stand out in terms of films compared to, you know, some of the newer stuff that's come out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like scenes with, you know, uh, you know, Dennis and his death, you know, when he... Um gets you know like that ink all over him and then he's yeah. in that car just you know being killed that's i mean that just looks better than any of the stuff that you see nowadays for sure yeah totally so in high school did you have a group of friends that were also into to movies or were you just kind of uh you know off on your own doing uh, your film thing yeah so um in that film class i had uh, my best friend there so we he was the like in terms of production and like the class we were the closest in terms of that so we were always be referred to by the other people in our group as like you know the video guys the people in the video class uh but in terms of like you know actual movie watching and you know going to the theaters i mainly just did that you know either like by myself or you know with like parents and family stuff like that mm -hmm. um there's can't think of many experiences where i'd actually go with friends to movies um i think we went to a couple like midnight premieres in high school like spider-man 3 mm -hmm. uh, pirates of the caribbean 3 stuff like that but not a whole lot of stuff that wasn't more until probably my year in Rochester, mm -hmm. we did more movie watching there because there was like a movie club. Oh, uh, cool. But yeah, not a whole lot in high school, actually. So coming out from California, well, where specifically in California did you go to high school? Uh, so it was in uh, so it's Apple Valley, California. It's on the high desert, so San Bernardino County. Oh, okay. So it's usually, usually a place you drive by on the way to like Vegas or something like that. Yeah. And not a place where you'd want to stay for too long. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the school... Yeah, the school was called um, the Lewis Center for Educational Research, as the, and then their school branch was called the Academy for Academic Excellence. So it seems kind of 
preppy and pretentious, but it was actually it's it's a free school. It's just a charter school, nothing nice uh, paid or nothing. Pretty regular people. Yeah, it sounds like a, a cool place to learn. Uh, specifically, you know, having a focus on on film uh, like that must have been really cool. So that makes me wonder what got you out to Rochester from uh, California. Was there anything in particular that drew you out there? Uh, so at, at that point, you know, since I'd been in California for so long, I really just wanted something different. And, you know, uh, as you would know, like once you're graduating high school, you want to, you know, just get out and finally, you know, do something different. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of looking at schools outside of the normal California, the UC system that everybody would be applying to, you know, UC Riverside, UC Irvine, UCLA, stuff like that. And then so I was looking at schools and then I kind of didn't do so well in my prep where I didn't take foreign language. In high school, since I already knew Spanish, I didn't want to take Spanish, you know? Yeah, totally. Uh, so, so I had to look at look at schools that didn't have that foreign language requirement, and that's how I came upon Rochester. And, you know, it was a pretty well-reviewed school. It looked cool. It was in the New York area. I thought I'd give it a shot. Yeah. I personally am not too familiar with the Rochester area, but I know New York is, as a state has just so many different things specifically for film. Obviously, New York City as a whole uh, just is a, is a beast of and to its own. Um, but New York State uh, as a whole definitely seems to have uh, a lot of opportunities uh, for someone who wants to pursue film and who wants to learn a little bit more about that. Yeah, and it's actually uh, funny. I didn't realize it you know, then at the time because I was so focused in school and other stuff that uh, Rochester is, as you probably know, that the uh, home of the Kodak, like Eastman Kodak. Oh, interesting. So it was, uh, yeah, headquartered in Rochester. So kind of goes back to that with the film roots yeah totally and it's crazy you know i don't know if you've seen the the video i think it's uh quentin tarantino and paul thomas anderson talking about uh kodak and specifically like the preservation of film around like 2012 or so uh kodak was going to cease production and so uh tarantino paul thomas anderson i think chris nolan got in on it and essentially, they all kind of lobbied to Kodak to keep going, and uh, and so now they're they're still in film production. Um, but apparently, you know, right after the 2010s or so, uh, there was this teetering point where it was potentially going to go all digital, uh, and they were going to do away with with film. But they finally, you know, were able to keep uh, the the factories rolling there. Um, so it would have been a crazy world to see, uh, you know, film without or cinema without film, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they. Uh, I don't think I've seen that particular, um, like, if it was a video or a talk, but I do know that they are, you know, huge, huge supporters of, you know, the film medium. And really, I mean, regardless of what one thinks of them individually, like Nolan's films or Tarantino's films or whoever, you know, they are pretty much responsible for, you know, keeping that side of the business alive and you know available and so that way future people can continue using that because if there wasn't any interest then yet people would just definitely just stop yeah no doubt so i do want to hear a little bit more about your time at rochester because you came out there and you started to realize that maybe this wasn't really what you had wanted or it wasn't going to get you where you wanted to be um so what was that turning point like for you when you finally came to that realization yeah, so originally uh, what I set out to study was computer science. So I took a computer science class in high school, really liked it. We had an awesome teacher. Uh, so I was like, you know, this would be you know, pretty cool. It you know, has a good future, of course. It's computer-related, uh, pays well. So decided to give that a shot. Pretty much three weeks into it, I was like, yeah, this is definitely not for me. Also didn't help that the uh, 
instructors that I had weren't the like the the best compared to you know coming from high school. You know, it's a completely different shift. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of finding what else I can do, and uh, so in between all that mess, uh, instead of you know studying for finals, that's when I started kind of getting into screenwriting. Mm-hmm. So at the time, you know, you know what scripts are, you know, they're the dialogue mainly, right? Uh, so I didn't really know about the art form and, you know, structure. I just knew that they existed. They're a part of the movie making process. And then I, you know, I read a script online, free PDF files are, you know, everywhere online. Oh, yeah. Got really into it. Got really into it. And then that's pretty much where it began of trying to, you know, write my own story. So I'd write, you know, a couple of short stories um, and I'd be focused instead of, you know, studying for finals and stuff, I'd be writing scripts and, you know, I still have some printouts of those and, you know, computer files. And that's where kind of my obsession began when I should have been studying for, you know, actual, you know, coursework. I was doing that instead in the library, but that's kind of where my shift began into wanting to do that instead. And then by second semester, I did give uh, linguistics a shot and I really liked that. That was a, a great, uh, field that I probably would have been pretty successful in and my, uh, instructor and who also would have been my advisor if I'd continued, um, great guy, uh, Scott Powell, who unfortunately passed away like a year later, I found out after leaving the oh, school. No. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that hit me pretty hard when I found out about that. Cause he's a really, really good guy. And, um, yeah, he would do stuff like his class would be, you know, a hundred people intro to linguistics and he'd be, you know, make sure to learn everybody by name. He could tell from, like, your last name if you were from, like, a specific part of Africa or whatever. It's it's really crazy. Like, he knew languages like like nobody else. Yeah. Very perceptive. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, it's really cool to to hear about, uh, you know, educators who did inspire you like that, who really left an indelible mark on your, uh, not only your education, uh, but in life in general. Um, So it's definitely good to, to give that recognition. Uh, I do think that your whole uh, productive procrastination, so to speak, uh, is really inspiring because I think that um, sometimes that's what it takes is, uh, you know, you have a task to do such as studying for a final, um, but you your passion is maybe somewhere else. And so you sometimes have to uh, find an outlet for that. Uh, and in this case, it kind of came out uh, instead of studying, you were able to to start writing and, and be inspired in that way. Uh, so f- for some of these early scripts, what in particular uh, did you want to write about? Was it your story or did you have other stories in mind? Yeah, I kind of had like the very, very first shorts that I did. I kind of did like a it was like a five part short series and I would just actually send it back to my friend from high school and then one other friend. So there's only you know two viewers slash readers yeah. uh, for this thing. Um, it was about, you know, a group of people, you know, being stranded out in the middle of some desert and then just trying to, you know, survive. So that was like the initial thing. And looking back at those scripts, they're, you know, terribly written, not formatted properly, but, you know, that's where everything kind of started. And then you just get better from there. So obviously the first few things that you write, they're never going to be good. Uh, you watch a lot of screenwriting videos and they're like, don't expect, you know, to do anything with the first thing that you write. Cause it's just kind of more of a thing to show yourself that you can do it, but nobody wants to read it. So maybe at some point I could fix them up and, you know, with what I know now I can make them better. But yeah, that was kind of like the first thing that I wrote. And then I also wanted to, and still hope to make a script sometime about just, you know, people that aren't necessarily enjoying their university experience. Cause you know, you usually think about college movies and what they're like raunchy comedies, you know, partying fraternities, stuff like that. There's never really like 
dramas about that kind of environment. Yeah. So I kind of want to do that at some point. Definitely. I mean, it definitely seems like an underrepresented, uh, it's not even a trope per se, because it hasn't been done. Um, but yeah, the tropes of college are, you know, parties about, uh, you know, things that happen. You look at social network, like, uh, you know, inventions, all that sort of stuff. But you don't really see as much somebody who goes to college and who's having a bad experience of it or who maybe decides that they want to switch up their majors or something like that. I think that's uncharted territory and it could make for a really good film. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, hopefully I can uh, Yeah, I kind of have initial ideas down. Like I've written, you know, a couple of scenes. And I mean, we could also talk about that later too, how like the process that I use to write. Yeah, yeah I'm really curious about I, that. Yeah, hopefully at some point I can definitely put something together and make something there. And, you know, honestly, I would like to if given the chance go back to rochester and shoot on campus but oh, yeah. we'll see we'll we'll see if that ever happens yeah totally we'll see if they they allow that uh now when you uh, are in rochester uh, what is the campus like i mean what's the life like there i mean did you find that it was something that uh fostered inspiration and creativity or did you find that it was more stifling uh rochester itself i mean compared to where i was because i was in you know Southern California, and that part was a conservative, mainly conservative town. So you'd see a lot of the same kind of people and same kind of beliefs. When I went to Rochester, of course, it's a more uh, open environment. So mm-hmm. you know you got to see a lot more than I wasn't uh, that I wasn't used to. You know, growing up and in high school, so that was cool. You know, seeing different beliefs, seeing people that weren't just all looking the same, and so that was cool. So that in itself is expir- an inspiring uh, thing. Uh, the campus itself, um, I mean, it's, it's a great school, but I just didn't really like the campus itself because it's in kind of a not the best area. There's not really much to do outside. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't really that motivation to, you know, go out and do different stuff around that area because there just wasn't much. And then same with the weather. As you know, upstate New York can get pretty gray, pretty depressing and, you know, cold. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Just, all of that didn't contribute to a good experience for me. And yeah, I don't know, maybe if I had just like, one more year I maybe stuck, would have stuck through, but yeah, just at the time I wasn't in the right headspace to deal with, you know, not knowing what I wanted to study plus not being in the best environment. So no it doubt. all contributed to my decision to leave. For sure. Now at that point in your life, had you been through many winters or uh, were those winters in Rochester like some of your first? Uh, yeah, I'd been through some because, you know, when we lived in Washington, that one's also, you know, pretty overcast and can be snowy. Yeah. Uh, same with Colorado. But yeah, definitely not at the level of Rochester. That was yeah. a complete uh, new experience. So, but I mean, I wasn't too out of it. Like, I honestly, I do prefer the cold over the heat. Um, so that part wasn't too bad. It's just the fact that there was really not much else to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's actually funny. Uh, so at Rochester, because the snow can get pretty bad, there's actually tunnels on campus. You know, to get you to different. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, to different buildings and classrooms, so that way you're not actually outside, and you have like the tunnel system. So. That was another interesting part of that school. Yeah, I, I would have loved that. I mean, I went to school in northwest Indiana, and we used to get lake effect snow from Lake Michigan, and we would have to just actually walk across campus. There wasn't anything underground, and I would have killed for something like that. We could stay warm, and you wouldn't have to go into the snow and all of that nonsense, but uh, that's so cool. Uh, now I am uh, wondering what kind of brought you out back to California. Was it a direct from Rochester to San Francisco or do you have a stop along the way? Uh, no. So after I left, uh, New York, so I went back to Ohio, which is where, you know, my family was at the time. And then, so I was there, I took some time off, just kind of worked 
and then I decided to go back to school. And then also during that time, I started working for uh, Lego. So that was a cool job because I've always been a fan of, you know, that company. And I thought it'd be really cool to work at a Lego store because we happen to have one in that Cincinnati area. Uh, I've never lived in an area that had one, so mm-hmm. I thought I'd give it a shot. And then from there, I was just kind of, you know, going to school and working there. And then, you know, about a year almost into that, I found out that they were going to be opening up a location in San Francisco. And I wanted to go back to California. So I was like, oh, this is a perfect opportunity. So I kind of applied for that, came out here, helped open the San Francisco store. And I was there for a couple of years. And that's where, you know, we actually met because I was working at Apple and Lego. And yeah, and then from nice. there was there for some time. But as you know, San Francisco can be pretty expensive. And I had to be working, you know, two jobs to kind of make it. Yeah. So I decided to, from then, uh, check out any other options that would be cheaper. So that way I can hopefully, you know, work on film projects. And that's how I decided to come to Idaho. And I've been here since. So almost two years now. Yeah. Time flies, right? I mean, I remember we met probably 2017 or so. Uh, you know, so it is, it is crazy because you've now been gone longer than, than we knew each other here in San Francisco, uh, which is just crazy, but you, uh, have kind of made that dream happen. Um, because I remember when you were getting ready to leave, uh, you know, to go to Boise, uh, it was one of those things where it made a lot of sense because you want to pursue screenwriting and you want to do it in a place where you don't have to spend as much on rent and on living and that sort of stuff. Uh, so to be able to make that transition back to somewhere where it's less expensive, uh, much like in Ohio or something like that, where you can uh, pursue your passion of screenwriting, but you don't have that incredibly expensive overhead of your apartment and all these things that uh, just, you know, add to all these costs. For sure. Yeah. So it's definitely uh, has its pros and cons. So definitely much cheaper, but then at the same time, giving up a steady income. And so it's kind of a definitely gives you more time but then you also have to give up other stuff so it's yeah definitely been challenging at times but i'm just doing the best we can and hopefully it works out eventually but yeah definitely because of that move had the chance to write an incredible amount of stuff um that i would have had otherwise so in Mm -hmm. my entire time in san francisco i didn't write a single page you know i'd have ideas write them down in you know my phone notes but i didn't actually write anything because whenever i wasn't working I would be, you know, trying to do other stuff. Yeah. Uh, but now, you know, I've written a handful of shorts, a uh, handful of screenplays, like full features. Uh, yeah, that definitely wouldn't have been possible if I had stayed in San Francisco. Yeah. And I think it's, it's incredible to see your output. Um, I've, I've told you this before, but I do want it on the record that you always are just cranking out screenplays and that inspires me like no other like it it makes i'm incredibly jealous of your work ethic um because you have a way of just i don't know what your your motivation is or or how you continue to do it um but i struggle with you know actually getting on the computer and just like writing ideas out and going for it um but you seem to just let the ideas flow and, and you've got a way to just let the ideas get out on paper uh, so I want to know about your creative process a little bit and specifically how you motivate yourself to do the work that you do and to crank out one screenplay after the other. Correct. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty much I since I, you know, I, that's what I really want to do. I know that the more work I have to present, the greater chance I have, because if you just have one thing that you hold on to, if that doesn't work out, 
you're kind of out of luck because if somebody's like, you know, we don't like this, but show us what else you have. You always want to be in a position where you have more stuff to show. So that's like, you know, the primary motivator. And then also uh, the fact that I'm just kind of constantly thinking up ideas, you know, since I have so much work experience, you know, with the public and customer service, you learn about so many different types of people. And that kind of, you know, just always stays in your mind of, you know, oh, this would be a cool idea for a movie. And, you know, this conversation that I had with this stranger made me learn about something that I had never knew about. And, you know, let me look into that, stuff like that. So since I have so much experience, you know, working with so many kinds of people, that also has helped with, you know, coming up with constant ideas. Now, those all those ideas, they don't always come out to full scripts, but they're just always there just in case. So sometimes you can mix a couple of ideas. Sometimes if you have an idea for a conversation, you just have the conversation written down and then you'll fit it into a script that fits sometime. So that's kind of a different writing style than what most people would probably teach you, but that's what's always worked uh, best for me. Now, do you tend to write when you feel inspired or do you tend to almost treat it as like a job where you just sit at the computer and you just write regardless of whether or not you feel the inspiration? So I always, I only write when I feel like wanting to write or, you know, when I have an idea. So it could be at seven in the morning. It could be at three in the morning. It'll just, you know, come to me and say, oh, you know, I have this idea. I want to, you know, get it written down before I forget it. Uh, but sometimes like I can write 20 pages in a day and then write nothing else for two weeks or then write <laughs> one page every day. So, yeah, it just really depends. So it's never a an exact formula or an exact schedule. It's just, you know, whenever I feel like, you know, I need to write something down. So you've seen before from my posts where sometimes I can, you know, crank out a short in two days. Sometimes it takes, you know, a month. It just <laughs> yeah, it really just depends depending on the idea and how I'm feeling at the time about it. Totally. Do you tend to, to juggle different ideas at the same time, or are you like just singularly focused where you've got an idea for a story and you just want to hammer that out before starting another one, or do you have multiple things going at the same time? Um, so in terms of ideas, I definitely have multiple at the same time. Uh, I'm not writing like the actual scripts, like two at a time. Like I won't have you know, two different documents and writing. Um, it'll generally be one at a time, but ideas, since they're always constantly coming and going, I'll always write those down. So even if I'm, for example, working on one short, I get an idea for another one. I, you know, write it down. I don't focus on it, but I do still write it down just in case the other one's not working out. I still have the other one to switch to. So yeah, it kind of switches. Um, cause shorts, you know, they're really short, so you can kind of focus on multiple ones at the same time a full, you know, feature that does take more concentration. So that one, you're kind of focused on that one for a longer period of time. But with shorts, since they're, you know, they can be 10 to 20 pages, um, you can focus on multiple ones at the same time. Yeah. When you, when you have the ability to focus on different things at the same time, like that's a, like a honed skill. Like it's not, it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. Um, so I think the idea, uh, once you get an idea out, whether it be in your iPhone notes or in final draft or whatever, uh, you can kind of let that idea gestate and just kind of like maybe focus on another thing and then you can come back to it. Uh, you know, I think it was in Mad Men where Don Draper was talking about, you know, uh, if you focus really hard on an idea and then you just let it go and you focus on something else, uh, sometimes you can kind of come back to it and look at it with like a new perspective. 
Uh, so I've definitely found that uh, particular process helpful if I'm kind of like stuck an idea or I've got writer's block or something like that. So I think it's great to have multiple irons in the fire to be able to maybe return to, you know, another idea when you feel inspired by it. Correct. Yeah. So it's, um, I've actually never, uh, Mad Men, I still need to go through. So I don't know about that particular example, but yeah, definitely agree, uh, with, uh, one idea can help it, um, the other one out for sure. I would definitely say, like, I know that there's just an onslaught of things to watch, but Mad Men in particular, very well worth your time. There's a great book called The Carousel, and it's by uh, Matt Zoller Zeitz. And he, so he did the Wes Anderson books, if you've seen them. Um, the, the, I think it's just called the Wes Anderson Collection. And he also made a book about uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, and anyway, so basically each episode has an accompanying essay about like the historical time, uh, you know, and the, the context and everything like that. So if ever you do get a chance to actually go through Bad Men, you get the book with it and you read the essay when you're done with each episode and it helps like contextualize, uh, what was going on in the history and like the importance of it and whatnot. Um, but it is long, you know, it's seven seasons, hour long episodes. So yeah, good luck. Good luck finding the time to do that. Uh, especially with, uh, your, uh, insane work ethic there, uh, being able to just crank things out left and right. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, on the topic of that Matt Zoller sites book, uh, just another kind of a bit of information there. My brother actually, uh, got to go to a talk, uh, of his in oh, San really? Francisco before, yeah, before I moved out there. Uh, about that book and about that release because my brother was a huge fan of Mad Men and he actually got that book and we have a signed copy uh, from him so yeah we have that uh, I still need to actually you know watch the social I could actually you know read that book but yeah I just wanted to plug that in because I thought it was always oh that's so cool, cool. Yeah, yeah totally how do you balance your media diet and uh, and by media diet I mean the movies you watch the music you listen to podcasts uh, in addition to uh, feeling inspired to write, like how do you juggle all that? What do you do? You have any tips for dividing? Like, what what would you say you do with that? Yeah. So, um, in terms of that media diet question, uh, also pretty much random. Uh, you know, sometimes I write, you know, movies of like a list of movies that you know I really need to see or classics that I'm still uh, behind on because there's a lot of movies that people would be surprised to find out that I still haven't seen. Uh, same with shows. So I always have those, and then always new stuff is coming out. So sometimes, you know, I'll just be browsing through Netflix or Amazon and see something that I had never even heard about and decide to watch that instead of something that it's, has been on my list for, you know, weeks or months. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, really just depends. Um, and then also, I, like I said, do try to balance it out. So if I watch, you know, like a really intense thriller, I'll try to follow it up with something more, you know, light, trying to kind of get that mix going. Um, but, yeah, really hard to say exactly what I'll watch at any given time because I'll have my list, but then, you know, new stuff will pop up and then I'll just decide to get that. I'll get affected by it easily and then I'll decide to choose something else. And then it also just depends on what's available. So there's a couple movies that I want to see. So right now I'm actually currently trying to make my way through every single uh, best screenplay nominee and winner. Oh, nice. And yeah. And some movies just are not available on streaming. Um, so then you just can't really do anything there. So I just decided to watch something else. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it really just depends. Uh, same with music. Uh, sometimes I'm guilty of listening to the same albums over and over again, just cause I really like them, but then there's new stuff coming out. Um, so yeah, it just really depends on what I decide to at that moment. Yeah. I try not to keep, uh, 
like some sort of rigorous schedule where, you know, I have to watch this this day and I have to watch this after this. I try to kind of just keep it open and yeah. uh, so it doesn't become kind of like a to-do list or a chore and just kind of mm. watch it as it goes. Because I'm also not watching things constantly every single day. Sometimes I'll go a week without watching a movie. It just really depends. Sometimes I'll watch three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to be able to uh, balance things out, you know, because I, I definitely there's fatigue involved when you just kind of sit and binge something for a long time. Um, so it's great to be able to kind of switch things up and to maybe listen to music instead of doing this or write, uh, because it can get monotonous if you're just, you know, watching movie after movie after movie. Um, as much as I love films, you know, there there is a breaking point where you feel like you've got to get up and do something. Uh, because I don't know about you, but but I try to, even though I actively watch a film, the act of watching a film is somewhat passive in that you're just sitting there and letting the movie happen to you versus writing or, or maybe even, you know, listening to music while you're doing something else. There's a bit of uh, an activeness to that uh, versus a passiveness of just sitting there and consuming something. Correct. Yeah, uh, there's that, too. And then same with, um, you know, sometimes you watch a movie that, you know, really leaves a like an impression on you and it's kind of hard to follow it up with something so you just kind of like yeah i'm gonna let this you know kind of simmer in my mind for a couple of days or a few hours and not focus on anything else because you're you know left so impressed by one uh so for example like um one example that i can think of is uh showa that like a uh, eight hour uh documentary by claude lonsman hmm. uh that one you know I spent a week watching that and then I kind of just didn't watch anything else because it's kind of hard to, you know, watch that and then just follow it up with like a, a comedy or something like that. You kind of have to like let it digest in a way. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Because, yeah, some stuff is like that. Other stuff, if you're watching like, you know, let's say the Rush Hour movies, you can watch Rush Hour 1 and 2, you know, back to back. No issue. So, yeah, it just really depends on the on what you just watched. Yeah. There's a certain weight to certain films that. Uh, almost makes them, uh, I I don't want to use the word, because there are really prestigious films, but then there's also films that uh, they leave, like you said, an impression on you, and it it's not always easy to just jump into another film right afterwards. Sometimes you have to, you know, get like almost like a palate cleanser of sorts to be able to, uh, you know, start looking at other things. Uh, so I do want to talk a little bit about how you actually watch your movies, uh, whether it be streaming or, or Blu-ray or, you know, things like that. What do you normally, when, when you do want to watch a movie, uh, what's your go-to or do you switch things up? How do you like to do that? Uh, so mainly it will be streaming. So I do still buy, you know, a lot of physical media. I have my Blu-ray collection cause I like owning hard copies of films that I like and, you know, supporting that. So, I don't want that to go away anytime soon, but most of my watching is through streaming just because the, you know, mainly what I own, I've seen maybe once or twice before and I kind of don't watch, I don't rewatch movies that often. I kind of want to, you know, check out something new and that'll be, you know, streaming. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's mainly streaming unless it's, you know, like a Criterion release that is coming out for a film that I really like or want to check out and, you know, check out all those special features and stuff like that. But yeah, mainly streaming uh, to watch new stuff since I won't own it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of tr- tricky. So I have access to a few of the streaming services. You know, there's Hulu, Netflix, uh, you know, Amazon Prime, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but you know, I don't know. Recently, I posted about uh, my disappointment with um, something like Stars, which mm-hmm. is one of the channels that's available on Amazon. 
because they do not show movies in the you know original aspect ratio. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you definitely won't see any black bars there. It's all 185, so it fills the screen. So it looks like old uh, full screen DVDs from the early 2000s, and it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. Uh, and you know, a lot of people won't if they don't pay attention to that stuff. You know, regular movie watching, they won't know otherwise. But mm. me, for example. And the example that I used was No Country for Old Men. So, you know, really beautiful widescreen landscapes shot by Roger Deakins, you know, one of the best. And then to see that, you know, compressed into an image that doesn't show the full, you know, environment, it just doesn't seem right and just doesn't feel like the real movie. So Mm -hmm. I would not so I would not watch it that way. Um, So I always try to make sure that um, it's in the highest quality possible. So if it's in Blu-ray, it'll be Blu-ray. If it's going to be through streaming, then it'll be through through streaming because you know uh likewise uh some movies only exist in dvd but you can watch them online for higher quality so it just really depends uh it'll be a mix yeah totally i love uh the attention to detail that you have when it comes to aspect ratios because i'm of a similar mentality um but i don't have a lot of film nerd friends who uh, you know, care that much about aspect ratio or, you know, resolution versus bit rate, which is an important thing that nobody really seems to talk about because you've got, you know, look at YouTube, right? 1080p, 4K, you can have great resolution, but the bit rate can be crap. And that's mm-hmm. essentially what uh, some of these streaming services offer is they offer high resolution, but low bit rate. And specifically with this uh, whole pandemic happening uh, in the UK, Netflix has actually been ordered to cap their resolution. So so now if you're paying for Netflix, you're capped at 480p DVD quality because wow. they want you to limit bandwidth usage. Uh, and so so the EU, so Apple Plus uh, or Apple TV Plus, you also have Disney Plus and Netflix all being essentially throttled by the EU in order to limit bandwidth. Uh, and so it's really frustrating because there you go, you're paying for the service, you want to watch something in high quality, and all of a sudden it looks like it, you know, is blocky and on, on a DVD. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's, it's pretty frustrating when you have experiences like that, um, and especially when it comes to uh, them cropping or changing the aspect ratio of certain things. Uh, it really does alter the presentation of these films and can really distract from the experience because it's not really what the filmmakers had intended on you seeing, really. For sure, yeah. And then there's that other thing that um, a lot of people, like if they're not really too focused on movies and they just kind of watch them every once in a while, the whole uh, you know soap opera effect on TVs, like they buy them, don't calibrate them uh, straight from you know the box, and they all look like cheap soap operas instead of like you know an actual movie with like you know proper lighting and stuff like that also oh my um, gosh yeah i yeah. mean it drives me crazy and, and it boils down to the frame rate versus the refresh rate and mm-hmm. again it gets into really technically nerdy territory here but you know 24 frames a second is what most films are shot at and the refresh rate of some of these tvs is actually a, a higher refresh rate than what the film uh frame rate is so it's basically trying to refresh the picture when there's no picture to refresh and it can leave these really strange uh, looking pictures on your screen. And, uh, you know, of course, the soap opera effect is what people know it as. And it tends to uh, have some really strange effects on a, a film that really wasn't meant to be displayed in that way. Uh, now, when you have sporting events or video games, like 
the high refresh rates are great for that um, because you're going to want to be able to refresh quick enough to to go with the action. But for films in particular, it just makes the films look awful. And uh, fortunately, most of these TVs have a setting where you can turn that off. Uh, but I remember, I think it was last year, um, a bunch of filmmakers got together and lobbied for the TV companies to uh, turn that off by default. Uh, I forget uh, the specifics of it. I'm looking it up right now, but I know that there was actually there were quite. I think it was like uh, James Cameron and like other filmmakers got together and were like, "Turn this feature off," and the the TV manufacturers are now going to be uh, leaving that feature off by default. Yeah, uh, I did see that. I didn't look too into it, but I did see that they wanted to have like a like a cinema mode or like a cinephile mode or something like that. Yeah, but yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely something that always. Uh, annoys me if I go over to, to somebody's house and, you know, they're going to put on a movie or something and then they have it that way. And because they don't really like know any better, they just think that's how it is because um, they don't really pay much attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then another thing is, did you ever get to watch The Hobbit in the high refresh rate version? I did not. Jackson yeah, tried? I was really I was really curious because it was 48 frames a second. Right. I never actually mm-hmm. got to see yeah, that so in I, its intended frame rate. Yeah. So that one, they somehow had a theater in Ohio showing it that way. So, yeah, that was definitely a bizarre experience because, like you mentioned, it looks like you're watching, you know, a live sporting event instead of like a, a movie. So it was definitely an experience that, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't never shoot a movie that way and I wouldn't like to see movies that way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's always good to experiment and see if it works or not. Uh, so, you know, Peter Jackson's always kind of trying out new things with his technology and his movies. So I would think that that experiment was a failed one. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a fan of it, but... Yeah, that's just one thing that I thought of when you mentioned the high uh, yeah. frame rate in the sport events. It's definitely something worth talking about because I think frame rate in relation to cinema has always been, you know, for the longest time, frame rate has always been a technical limitation where, you know, you're you're using actual film and, you know, the film can only go through the camera this quickly and, you know, it made sense. But now that we live in a digital age, um, there is the ability to, to be able to play around with different frame rates. And when directors do that, it kind of starts to beg the question about what is cinema and how does cinema look and feel and, you know, there's a lot of different opinions on it. Uh, I follow uh, a guy by the name of David Bordwell, uh, a famous film scholar, and he uh, has talked a lot about the frame rate and different things like that. And specifically, cinema has always been a little bit distanced from reality. It has kind of this dreamlike quality to it uh, because film looks real, but it's not so real that it feels like you're actually in a room with these people. Um, But as the technology starts to get better and better and better and we can shoot in like, you know, 8K and 60, you know, sometimes 120 frames a second, you know, crazy high frame rates. Yeah, uh, hashtag Ang Lee. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, It starts to become almost a different medium altogether. It doesn't really feel like film or like cinema. Uh, even though it may be shot in a way that, you know, oh, this is a two hour movie, uh, it may not really have that same impact on the viewer uh, as a result of these changes in the way it's, uh, you know, made essentially. For sure. Yeah, it's really uh, always up for debate and it really comes down to, you know, personal preference. But yeah, I mean, you know, with like 8K and above, it's a, it comes to a point where it becomes so clear and so real at that point, it's just kind of like you're there live and it's just not the same. Mm-hmm. Like you also don't you also don't want a movie to look that good. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, that's good for, you know, 
satellite images or if you're shooting stuff like, you know, Planet Earth where you really want that up-close realism. But if, you know, you're shooting a movie about, I don't know, people hanging out in a neighborhood in Chicago or something like that, you're not going to want to have that in, like, 16K ultra heat. I don't know. That's just me. But, yeah, it just really depends on the project. Same with um, something that I also recently posted about the whole film versus digital. I'm a fan of both. You know, obviously you can't use film in some scenarios. You can't, uh, you know, shoot, let's say, you know, like a big blockbuster with, you know, a lot of effects. That's not going to be really good for shooting, you know, on 16 millimeter. Um, So that one you definitely do want to be shooting on digital. But it just really just depends on what the story is and what the environment calls for. So yeah, a good mix of both is always good. Yeah, I think it's important to be able to think about what the project calls for. I think there are some people that, you know, always shoot on digital because it's cheaper. And some people are like, always shoot on film because it looks better. Um, But at the end of the day, each does have its own benefits. And I think it's important to really kind of understand what it is that you're trying to say, what the story is trying to communicate, and whether or not film ultimately would serve the story. Uh, and serve the narrative. Um, there was a headline just yesterday, actually. Uh, Damien Chazelle uh, is actually going to be shooting his new Netflix series on 16 millimeter, um, which is kind of huge because Netflix, ever since I think it was like 2014, has required their filmmakers mm-hmm. to shoot uh, at least in something that can be preserved in 4K. Um, but with uh, 16 millimeter, it basically caps out at around 2K. And so it's really interesting that Netflix is kind of giving him this leeway to be able to shoot on 16 millimeter. Um, so it's it's going to be interesting to see how this project works out. Um, but it's set in like France in the 1960s or so. Um, so Damien Chazelle was talking about how it was really important to the story uh, to be able to use 16 millimeter and to be able to tell the story using those tools that were available at the time versus sh- shooting it in digital and having it be like super crystal clear. Correct. Yeah. That, yeah. For like I was mentioning, it just really depends on the setting. Uh, like if your movie is about, uh, you know, like something taking place in older times and it's not supposed to be, you know, super clear because it's supposed to be, you know, gritty and stuff like that. Uh, for example, one thing that I can think of would be, uh, you know, the movie Mudbound that recently came out. Um, mm-hmm. That one would have been, and I think the DP actually did say that she would have. Uh, if they had access to the budget to be able to shoot on film, they would have to give it that grittier look to fit the environment of the people that you're shooting. Um, but they were just limited to, you know, budget and ease. So they went digital. But yeah, that's one film that, of course, it's still a great film on its own, right? But it would have been a little bit heightened if it had that film shot, you know, grittiness and grain to mm-hmm. fit that environment. Yeah, totally. I don't know. Did you do you watch Breaking Bad? You seen Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul? Uh, yeah, so I definitely have seen all of Breaking Bad. Uh, Better Call Saul, I need to catch up. So I watched the first season when it came out, okay. and then I have not caught up since. I don't know why, but yeah, I definitely need to do that. Well, um, that way. it's interesting because Breaking Bad was shot on film, and Better Call Saul is shot digitally at like about 4 to 8K, depending on uh, the season. And uh, season one's tough to get through. Like, it's not bad, but it doesn't get great until you get into, like, seasons two and three. Um, So I'd say keep going. Uh, It was, you know, it's not the easiest watch uh, because in season one of Better Call Saul, it doesn't really know what it wants to be just yet. And it isn't until Mm -hmm. the later seasons that it really finds its own ground and starts to kind of become its own show. Uh, And I think, I mean, Wes Anderson just called it the best thing on TV right now. 
uh, which is oh, wow. yeah, really high praise. He talked about it in his quarantine watch list, and he said it's the best show on TV. Uh, so it's really high praise. And I wouldn't really expect Wes Anderson to be into uh, Better Call Saul, but he <laughs> is. And uh, it's really, really interesting stuff. But it draws that parallel between film and digital. And one of the best things about Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is the podcast. Do you listen to the uh, Insider podcast? Have you heard about that at all? Uh, no, I'm not too familiar with it, actually. Okay, so if you're into Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, they have a podcast called the Breaking Bad, or in this case, the Better Call Saul Insider Podcast. And every episode, it's about an hour long with Vince Gilligan, sometimes Peter Gould, who did uh, Better Call Saul. And it's just the writers, directors, sometimes actors, just talking about the episode. And it's basically like a standalone commentary track where they talk to you about uh, how it was made, the thought process in the writer's room, uh, all those sorts of things. So it's a really interesting viewpoint, and they call it a film school podcast um, because mm. basically they teach you uh, how the sausage is made, so to speak. And so you really get an insider's perspective. Uh, and to think about having insights into the creative process with something that's as prestigious as uh, Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, uh, where they're, you know, basically the height of prestige TV. And to get an insider's view into the creative process and the thought process behind the creation of it uh, is just amazing. And so if you're interested, uh, it is incredibly long because obviously there's an hour long for each episode. Um, but it is really interesting to be able to get that perspective from the people who made the shows as they're making the show. Uh, and there's really nothing quite like it out there in the podcast world. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. Um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of anything related to, you know, commentary tracks, special features where they talk about stuff, you know, like the influences of that particular episode or the process for writing it. So, yeah, definitely right at my alley. And I'll for sure uh, look into that once I finally get to catch back up on the show. Yeah. And well, and that's the problem. Like we're living, I mean, the the podcast is called Metamodernism and it's all about this current cultural moment. And to really understand metamodernism, you kind of have to be familiar with modernism and then postmodernism. And it gets really into some heady territory, but specifically in this world of metamodernism, uh, there is so much happening in terms of media. Uh, they call it peak media, and it basically mm -hmm. describes all of the things that are happening in terms of films, podcasts, movies, TV shows. Uh, all of these things are, are too much to consume right now. <clears throat> And so the idea is that there has to be some sort of a curation or some way of filtering out the good from the bad uh, and looking at things like media diets, because, again, you can only consume so much and you do kind of have to understand that there's just going to be too much to ever consume in your lifetime. Mm -hmm. So as a result, you kind of have to weed through things and kind of figure out what's worth your time and what's not. So it can be incredibly overwhelming when there's this plethora of TV shows uh, that are coming out, uh, some of which are that prestige level where you get to, you know, if you look at HBO in the early 2000s, you look at, you know, The Wire, Sopranos, stuff like that, uh, that stuff kind of set the bar. And then what started to happen in the 2010s is you started to get kind of the... Um, I wouldn't want to call them wannabe prestige, but these are shows with incredibly high production values, sometimes amazing casts, but they don't quite hit the same highs as some of the other shows that uh, they're influenced by. And so it tends to be a lot of high production mediocrity. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of stuff out there 
that looks like it might be worth your time, but it's like, you know, five to six seasons of 13 hour or 13 episodes, hour long each. And it becomes a chore to go through it all and to figure mm -hmm. out, you know, is you only have so much time in the day to be able to consume this sort of stuff. Uh, so I think being able to allocate that time is important and you do have to make some tough decisions along the way. Yeah, exactly. It's a uh, very, very tough to decide what to watch because there's, you know, the stuff that people talk about, then there's people that, uh, things that people don't talk about and it's kind of like deciding what you want to do with, mm -hmm. um, your time, like you mentioned. Uh, and it's also with the rate that things are coming out. It's like one thing will be hot one week and then it's, you know, already forgotten about the next week and there's like the new big thing, uh, you know, like for example, Tiger King, which, you know, everybody's familiar with, which, I mean, I haven't personally seen it myself, but it's funny how that documentary became such a huge thing. And then something else that I was a huge fan of that came out recently uh, on HBO called McMillions about the Ooh, Monopoly yes. fraud. My wife that and I just I thought, got finished with it. Yeah, that is an incredible story. And I had so much fun watching that. And, you know, you watch it and it feels like a show where they just keep on inventing stuff to keep it going. But it's an actual true story. And, you know, m not many people talked about that. And I would have thought that that would have been a much bigger story than Tiger King. But you just never know what people will respond with, what people will make memes out of i guess it's easier to make memes out of people you know in tiger king than a mcdonald's scandal so it just really yeah. depends um well it's it's really interesting that you brought that up a couple of things i want to touch on uh one is is something called the death of monoculture uh i'm not sure if you're familiar with like monoculture as a whole but people often talk about the fact that there can never be another band like the beatles not that mm -hmm. there necessarily can't ever be a band that sounds like the Beatles, but there can't ever be a band that has the world's attention like the Beatles did in the 60s, where everyone was paying attention to this band at the same time because yeah. of the splintering of our culture. Because there's so much happening at one time, there's so many shows coming out, so many movies being made that again, it's it's a flavor of the week. You know, you look at different things that come and go, uh, and you look at the Tiger King versus McMillions, and that the Tiger King seemed to really take social media by storm, uh, but something great like McMillions maybe didn't get as much attention. And and why is that? And what was going on? And, and I'm kind of curious, specifically with Tiger King, uh, because I personally didn't watch it either. Um, I'm almost wondering if, if a lot of these memes and the things that are being shared on social media are almost created by Netflix themselves as like a marketing ploy, because uh, it definitely seems like whenever a new Netflix show comes out, there's a lot of memes created about it. And you got to wonder, because I think with the nature of memes, they're created by people and, uh, you know, fans of the show. Uh, but you also kind of, I mean, not to be too cynical, but you got to wonder if Netflix is using these memes as a marketing ploy uh, to get the, the word out about their shows, because memes are an incredibly effective communication tool uh, for a certain generation. Um, so I am kind of curious if maybe that was kind of the standalone factor. And the other thing, too, is that a lot of people have access to Netflix over HBO. And I think this this ties into the whole um, aspect of uh, access and basically people watch what they have access to. So mm -hmm. if somebody only has Netflix, they're just going to browse Netflix and be like, oh, what garbage can I click on this week because I've watched all the good stuff rather than seeking out maybe another streaming service, which has maybe uh, more critically acclaimed content or something that's more worthwhile. And I think that that, you know, specifically with Tiger King versus McMillions, um, McMillions definitely had, I don't know, I think it was a more compelling story. I thought it was, um, 
just really well done. And, and the funny thing is, is that I had known about the, uh, the story uh, of McMillions, at least the, the overarching uh, plot line. And I'd watched, I think there was a YouTube, like a mini YouTube documentary kind of about it. And what I didn't realize is the details of the story, specifically how the, the FBI got the guy. And, uh, and the crazy thing was that uh, they kind of used that sting operation of being a film production crew. And when you, when you have that as like the central focus point, you start to realize there's video footage shot in the late 90s and early 2000s of all of this going down. And so when you realize that there's new um, footage to be watched about this and it totally changes the, um, the light of the story and just kind of the, the narrative structure there, uh, I don't know. I just thought McMillions was, was really well done. And the fact that they were able to get so many of the original players on camera uh, talking about things uh, was just incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, you definitely went over a lot. So I kind of made notes here to kind of hit each point uh, on an individual basis. Uh, so in terms of the monoculture thing with the Beatles, I do agree that obviously there's still, you know, hundreds of really great bands today. But, yeah, there won't ever be an exact one like the Beatles because they came out at just the right time, you know, before, you know, obviously you can't have that nowadays because, you know, there's so many things coming out. So people are focused on so many different things compared to when the Beatles came out. There was less bands coming out. So there was less to, you know, cipher through. And, you know, if one of them was popular. That would be all that you would see. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because I just recently watched uh, yesterday that, mm, uh, yeah. You, that yeah, with Danny, Bo Danny Boyle, that Danny Boyle yeah. film. Yeah. So that also talk, tackles that subject of what would it be like if the Beatles had come out today, if they would even matter if those you know songs would make the same impression. So that mm -hmm. was a really good movie that I, I had a lot of fun with. Um, I know it's not the most well-reviewed, but I dug it. Um, and then with the memes and marketing, also another good valid point, uh, because the same could be said with uh, Disney Plus recently with the uh, the Mandalorian show with Star Wars. Oh, yeah. So obviously, as you know, you know Star Wars has been kind of objectively on a downhill you know not many people think of it as highly as before because of you know the recent movies or you know just the oversaturation if you will yeah um, but with the release of that mandalorian show and the whole baby yoda character uh that definitely you know re-sparked a lot of interest in people and that became such a sensation when that came out so it definitely helped with uh that and you know it's always hard to say exactly you know why they did create that specific character if it was you know, as a response, you know, get people reinterested. Um, we'll have to wait and see how the actual story develops with everything as a whole. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely a, a valid point where one would think that certain things are created, you know, just to get people's attention. Um, I mean, not to cut you off here, but I almost yeah. think that, uh, you know, they for a while almost kind of reverse engineered these characters when they almost look at it from a marketing standpoint first and being like, what's a cute character that we can use to sell toys? And then they include it in the film. So specifically with, uh, you know, Baby Yoda, I, I think it's, they, they came out and said it's like not officially, because I actually didn't see The Mandalorian, so I'm not mm -hmm. super familiar with the particulars. Um, but I remember everyone was calling it Baby Yoda to begin with, and they're like, actually the character has a name and it's not Baby Yoda, but I keep calling it Baby Yoda because I don't know any other any other name for it, it seems to be the internet's name for it uh, but it's almost like disney was like okay what's a cute character that we can throw in here to sell toys correct yeah it's definitely uh one of the star wars franchise's biggest money makers has always been the the toys and so there's always going to be uh a discussion about you know whether this is you know absolutely necessary or if it would be a good 
market. Um, so all we can wait to see is uh, how the actual story develops of the show with, you know, baby Yoda. He's actually just, you know, the child since we don't know the name. So he just looks like Yoda because there's never been anybody of that race before. So that's why they hmm. refer to him that way. But we'll just have to wait to see if, you know, that actually comes out to be, you know, a worthwhile result using that character. Yeah. Uh, instead of just, you know, a device used to, you know, get people's attentions. So we'll just have to wait and see uh, that, as you know, has also been postponed the season two because of uh, the COVID delay. So they were in the middle of shooting that. And then we'll have to probably wait until probably until next year until we see that, because I think it was supposed to come out uh, later this year. But with that being delayed, it probably won't come out until I'd say next summer. Mm -hmm. Well, I I know that you're a big Disney guy and I see you post about Disney a lot. Uh, I think what's happening to Disney right now is worth talking about. And I don't know how intimately you followed uh, the trajectory of the company over the last six months or so. Um, but it is crazy. Um, so if we rewind the clock a little bit to when they acquired Fox, uh, you know, $60 billion spent on Fox, incredible merger, spent a lot of money on that merger. And it definitely did a huge consolidation of the big studios. You know, Fox and Disney coming together uh, really is kind of unprecedented at that level. And what was really unexpected is in February, specifically February 25th, Bob Iger stepped down. And he wasn't actually supposed to step down until the end of 2021 when his contract expired. So, you know, the CEO just all of a sudden steps down and everyone's like, what the heck is going on? Why did he step down early? And he was very tight-lipped about it, never really said a word about it. Uh, and Mr. Bob, uh, I think it's Chapek or Chapek, uh, he took over uh, for Bob Iger. And this was at the end of February. And then, you know, Give it what you will, but I read a post online from a 4chan forum, specifically from 4chan's TV and film board. So um, take it with a grain of salt as we can't verify the authenticity of this post and it does get a little political, but uh, the post goes as follows. So I work for a large media company, pick related as a hint, and it is of Star Wars land at Disney World. And I thought you guys should know we are having a huge civil war right now. The company was already doing pretty bad. But this coronavirus killed off people going to theme parks, cruise ships, and packed theaters. So right now, everything needs to make a profit. And even when the current virus phase goes away, we still need constant profits to pull ourselves out of the pit. But here's the problem. Our new CEO and most stockholders want to rid the company of social justice warriors and woke stuff, since that will kill us for sure if we continue going down that path. But the social justice warrior crowds who strong-arm themselves into the company will have none of it. So what's happening is that crowd has hired firms to lobby the government to give us bail money so they can continue making their non-profitable movies without bankrupting the company. But the CEO is a penny pincher and doesn't want to go down this path. So obviously it's, a, it's an anonymous post on a uh, 4chan board, so it's tough to take it with any grain of uh, sincerity. But then what happens, you know, right after this post hits, Disneyland closes down in California. Parks are closed. March 15th, Disney World closes and Disneyland in Paris closes. Now, parks and theaters uh, or parks and retail and cruise lines all together make up about 35 to 40 percent of Disney's overall revenue. And that is just gone. All of a sudden just evaporated. So as a result, Disney's scrambling and they're trying to get stuff out to people. And so they put Frozen 2 and the new Star Wars movie on Disney+. Plus. 
Some people see it as a gesture of goodwill. They say, oh, look at Disney. They want us to have something good to watch during the uh, shelter in place. Uh, but then a more cynical view is that Disney is desperate for cash and they need to put these movies on Disney Plus so they get subscribers. Uh, so it's really interesting to see uh, their response to this. And of course, on March 30th, executives take a pay cut. Across the board, it's like 20 to 30% all these execs had to take a big pay cut, and then they furlough 100,000 theme park and retail workers. So Disney as a company is not doing so hot right now. And so it's going to be interesting to see how they get out of this and what the future will look like for Disney, especially because these parks may be closed for the foreseeable future, you know, California mm -hmm. yeah. and, and uh, Florida, you know, who knows what the when the dates will come where these parks can open again. And even when they do open, who knows what social distancing will look like in a park with all of these rides and things like that. It's a really big question mark. So I'm kind of curious to almost hear your opinion about what what the direction may be that the company may be heading in and if they may be able to pull out of this. <laughs> Yeah, definitely a, a heavy talk, and I think that there's really no question that Disney is for sure struggling, um, and, you know, so many signs point to it. Uh, they'll never, you know, fully admit it because they're such a, you know, respected company, and they want people to think that they're doing okay. But, yeah, there's really no question, I think, that they are struggling. I mean, you can look at um, what they've done with Star Wars, so I'm not going to really talk about my opinions of, you know, the sequel trilogy and stuff like that, but... Um, if you just look at, you know, the profits that those movies have made, um, if you compare it with episode seven, you know, The Force Awakens, when it first, you know, relaunched the franchise that made, you know, over two billion and that went down to just one with episode nine. Uh, so they've made half the money that the first one made. So clearly they are not as profitable and unstoppable as one would have thought originally. So even they, you know, can have their weaknesses and because of some decisions that, you know, certain individuals at, um, you know, Lucasfilm or the different branches of that company uh, have made that have been, you know, the cause of a lot of division amongst fans and, you know, critics, they've lost a lot of their, you know, power and certainly the COVID also doesn't help them too. Um, so they're going to really need to make decisions that cut a lot of stuff and then try to re, um, introduce things that hopefully make them money and get them back afloat because they are losing a lot of their revenue um with the parks as you mentioned you said it was like 35 percent of their total net worth comes mm -hmm. from the parks and that's pretty much been essentially shut down now yeah. and probably will be for the rest of the year so they're going to need to find ways to you know cut a lot of stuff um be careful about what they make next i mean i think nobody more than bob Iger has learned his lesson with uh what happened with star wars and they definitely don't want to do that thankfully they do still have marvel and the mcu uh films even though they're not always the best and you know they're still consistent quality and they still make them a good amount of money mm -hmm. and game and game more than mo made up for um what they lost with rise of skywalker so thankfully they still have a lot of things good on track if they just keep that way and they're just more careful about what they release and because uh, they've obviously seen that uh, you know, when they first bought Star Wars for four billion, they're like, "Yeah, this is going to be easy. We have, you know, the most popular franchise. All we have to do is, you know, just come out with stuff. People will be there to watch it." They've clearly been proven wrong. Uh, yeah. You know, they they spent you know half a million making Solo and reshooting it. 
nobody went to see that movie, um, unfortunately, because mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty solid. But yeah, it made no money. It lost money. So they've clearly lost a lot on the Star Wars purchase. And same with, you know, the Star Wars land. I haven't been there. I know it's called Galaxy's Edge. Um, but that wasn't also as big of a hit as they thought. And they invested so much into that. So they had definitely uh, big blows in the past couple of years. And this is not helping at all. So hopefully um, they could rise out of it in the next few years if they, you know, are careful about the way they do things. They don't maybe release as many movies. Um, they don't, you know, flood the market too much. I don't know. I'm not really an economist or yeah. a marketing expert. But yeah, it's clear that they are in very vulnerable territory. I know that there's some uh, articles out there about, you know, Apple buying them, and I don't ever see that happening. But yeah, yeah it's definitely a, a known issue that as much as they try to hide it, they are definitely in a struggling phase. And they need to be careful about what they do next. Yeah, I think it's going to be really crazy to see what the company will look like on the other side of all of this. Uh, I think what's happening to them really highlights uh, kind of this disparaging difference between what we see movies as versus what they actually are. Uh, You know, of course, a lot of people will go to the theaters or, you know, download a movie or stream it on Netflix. And to them, it's, you know, entertainment, something to watch. Um, But to these companies, I mean, these are a form of business, right? I mean, when you mm-hmm. actually go down to it, you look at, uh, you know, a Star Wars movie. When a Star Wars movie is, gets created, basically any film that gets made, a company gets made for that, for the uh, production of the film. So it's it gets really into some strange territory because you look at, like, a Solo. Uh, Solo then is formed as its own company. And this is like all the paperwork that gets done on the back end. And it basically becomes a, uh, a standalone company that the Walt Disney Company technically owns. Um, so what you end up having is Disney spending a lot of money uh, to make these movies. You know, maybe they spend half a billion dollars, you know, 500 million or something like that on some of these movies. And it basically becomes a big risk and it's, it's a bet, right? They're going to say, okay, we're going to pour $200 million into this movie and we're going to expect a billion dollars back or something like that. Right? So it's, it's a, it's a high risk, high reward scenario because they spend a lot of money and they're hoping to make even more money. Um, but what can happen is something like onward, uh, the new Disney Pixar movie, its budget was around $200 million, but it just so happened to land in theaters around the time that coronavirus is coming out. So it basically got its uh, box office budget cut short. So as a result, it only made around $100 million. So that's a loss of around $100 million. So, I mean, to us, $100 million is a crazy huge loss. To a company like this, not so much. But you have enough of these losses strung together, and you start to run into some financial troubles. And so specifically with some of the movies that have come out, um, what was the ones on the list here? Um, Solo, Nutcracker, Four Realms, Wrinkle in Time, Dumbo, Mary Poppins, Christopher Robin, all of these movies lost money for Disney. Um, And I think, you know, you and I have a little bit of a different opinion on Disney. I think I grew up with Disney, so I have an affinity and a nostalgia for it. But I recognize Disney for the uh, company that essentially corrupted U.S. copyright law in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Disney itself was responsible for lobbying for an extension of copyright laws and for locking things down. 
Um, Disney as a company, uh, basically in the you know early days in the 30s and 40s when they were big on making their animation a thing, they basically took stories that were in the public domain and they made Disney versions of it and locked down copyrights of Cinderella, of Beauty and the Beast, of all of these public domain stories. And now they're locking down the intellectual property for it by extending the copyright. Um, what's really interesting is that at this point, I don't want to say Disney is creatively bankrupt, but they are in such a way where all they're doing is making remakes of uh, specifically the all the animated movies are like, let's make a live action. Let's make a live action this. And I think it's they think it's a safe bet um, because in the same way that when they bought Star Wars, they're like, oh, we can just put a Star Wars movie in the theater and we're going to make some money. Oh, we're just going to make a live action this movie and we're going to make money banking on the nostalgia factor. Uh, so it's really interesting to see how this will all shake out for the company um, because they're starting to get to a point where, uh, you know, they can't just keep cranking out these movies that don't turn a profit, uh, that they will need to kind of focus on the quality aspect of things. Um, and I think that that is um, a really important factor when it comes to filmmaking. Um, because it kind of boils down, and, and we're, we can get into this in a bit, you know, film versus a movie. Uh, you know, you go to a movie versus seeing a, a work of art, a piece of film. Uh, yeah, for sure. And then I also do want to say that um, in terms of my thoughts overall on Disney, uh, it's pretty much a love and hate relationship because it's, you know, it's hard not to be a fan of them because they own so much of what is out there. So either way, in some form, whether it be sports, uh, you know, National Geographic now or, you know, movies, you're a fan of Disney in some way. But at the same time, their business practices, uh, a lot of questionable things that they do at the, you know, their lawyers and copyright, as you mentioned, uh, same with, you know, their rules regarding, uh, you know, screening movies for theaters. They do a lot of stuff that I don't agree with. And same with, you know, the whole thing with Disney Plus, where they said that they would have, you know, all their library available, but then they're also, uh, have been titles that have been removed already. So it's like you don't have access to everything and they still want to kind of control what you can have access to. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things that I do not agree with at all. Well, let's talk about that before yeah. we even get into Scorsese. I mean, what's your opinion on Disney censoring movies? I mean, have you seen the article? So um, the big one recently was Splash, how they added CGI hair uh, to cover up, uh, uh, what's it, Daryl Hannah's butt. In, in that movie. Uh, and then you also have uh, scenes like from Dumbo being cut. Uh, there's there's a scene in Dumbo, which is a film from the 1940s, and there are these black crows who are supposed to represent the Jim Crow laws of the South. That was cut out. Uh, and then you also have something like we talked about aspect ratio. They changed the aspect ratio of The Simpsons. And they cut, they made it widescreen, and Disney's finally going back. They admitted that they are, they made a mistake and that they're going back and they're remastering it in the original full screen. Um, but basically, when they remastered it to widescreen, they literally cut off the tops and the bottoms of the, the picture in order to mm -hmm. make it widescreen. Uh, so I'm curious what you think about uh, Disney doing these things, uh, censoring these films, and, and kind of changing the aspect ratio. Yeah, I, uh, as you would imagine, I absolutely hate it. Um... I mean, I don't. I'm not too familiar with like The Simpsons and stuff. Those examples, but just overall, the idea of changing something and then making that the only version that's available, I uh, really dislike that. Um, as I mentioned before, with you know certain streaming services uh, not offering the original aspect ratio, that always annoys me. Um, same with another example is that the Avengers movies. So you know, Infinity War and Endgame, 
they always, you know, promoted those movies as being the first project to be filmed entirely in IMAX. So, you know, you have those nice open ratios. That's how it was displayed in theaters. But then in home media, they changed it. So you can't have the IMAX version in home, even though you look at, you know, Christopher Nolan's work or even some of the DC films. uh, If there's a scene shot in IMAX, the Blu-ray preserves that and you can still get that same look. Mm. Uh, They don't have that because they want everything to match up with their library. And I absolutely hate that. And obviously it's going to be a business decision because they say that um, I think like the Russo brothers said in a Q&A once that the reason why they don't have the IMAX version on the Blu-rays is because IMAX didn't let them, which I'm just kind of confused about because, you know, Disney is one of the biggest companies in the world. How do they not um, have power over that? And especially if um, like what does IMAX own? They don't own like the movies. So I don't know how they can control them and how they display or how they release their movies. Because like I mentioned, if you look at, for example, Aquaman, a DC movie, uh, that does have IMAX ratio scenes in it. So IMAX clearly allows, you know, that to be done. So I don't know why they weren't able to do that here. My opinion, and most likely it's just a year from now, they'll want to release a set with, you know, Endgame and Infinity War and say that it's the IMAX version. So that way you have to spend another 50 to get those. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm gonna do it because I'm a fan of those movies and I want to see them that way. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely another one of those shady practices that I hate about them, but they kind of, there's not much that you can do if they control it. Are you familiar with uh, the term windowing? Uh, I might know what it is, but I'm not sure about that particular term. So windowing is a term used in the industry to describe when a movie hits the theaters and then the amount of time that it's gone from the theaters before it hits physical media or uh, digital release. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. so windowing is a practice used by movie studios to basically control artificially the supply to build up demand. And so what's really interesting is that it's unique to film and television, um, but it's not something that you see with uh, uh, like a musical album. Like you think about going to a theater, you watch a movie, and then you really enjoy it, and then you don't get to access that film for another six to nine months. And in those six to nine months, there's this, oh, I want to watch that movie. I want to, but you can't. The studios lock it away essentially in a vault to prevent you from getting to it. So no matter how much money you throw at the studio, they're not going to release it. They want to basically build up this artificial demand. And what's interesting is you think about it in terms of like, oh, what would it be like if you were to do that with music? where there's a, there's a musician who records an album and then they release the album and you can listen to it, but then they're like, no, you don't get to buy it. We're just going to we're gonna let you rent it and then we're going to lock that album away for months and months and months and then we're going to re-release it uh, to make even more money on it. So it seems like an archaic practice in the digital age and a lot of people have come out against it. Steven Soderbergh has talked about the death of windowing and, and how windowing is really... Uh, a relic of a bygone era, and yet windowing is still a regular business practice used by a lot of companies. And in April of 2019, Bob Iger gave a talk uh, or gave a an interview. I think it was to CNN, and here's what he had to say: um, because they were asking if Disney Plus would get rid of windowing, because it would be a great idea. You know, you could have a Disney movie, and then it just hits Disney Plus, and you don't have to worry about this extensive window. 
And uh, here's what Bob Iger said. This is not really about windowing to us because frankly, those windows are working really well for us. As mentioned earlier, our studios had two years where we made over $7 billion in global box office. And that's only about 10 movies a year. So that's really working for us. And if it's not broken, we don't want to try to fix it. I don't really think for us there would be any money in it if we were to put those movies on the service any earlier. So I think it's really telling that uh, to them it's a business, right? It's a way for them to make money. Uh, they don't really care so much about the user experience or about whether or not we have access to these films. It's about making more money. Um, so I think what's interesting is in the wake of this, they've started to eliminate some of the windowing that they've been doing. Uh, like I mentioned, they released uh, Frozen 2, and they also put uh, the new Star Wars movie on Disney Plus much earlier than expected, uh, which is totally a change of course for Disney, um, because they've usually relied on those windows as a way to make money. Uh, but in the wake of the coronavirus, they've had to you know, revert course and try to make money now rather than later. Uh, so I think it's really telling when you can have Disney do a 180 like that and all of a sudden release these movies when they were before, you know, being locked away. That's the whole idea of the Disney vault, right? Where they mm -hmm. basically will have these movies. Oh, you can't have them. We have them, but you can't buy them uh, sort of mentality. And I think that's actually what leads to piracy. Um, that's one of those things that, uh, you know, when you have artificial windows uh, constraining the supply, you're going to have people going to streaming services uh, looking for these. You can't find them. So they go to the open seas of the Internet and they find it um, specifically because I get nerdy about this sort of stuff. Uh, there's an office in the government, uh, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, they deal with copyrights and about, uh, you know, piracy and stuff like that. And they actually just published this huge landscape study uh, about piracy landscape on the Internet. Uh, it was conducted by Chapman University and Car uh, Carnegie Mellon University. And here's what they had to say, which I think is really interesting. They said, our analysis of the academic literature on anti-piracy strategies shows that firms can reduce piracy by making legal content more available and more appealing. Exactly. Said strategies such as making legal content available on convenient digital channels or reducing the release windows between different releases of the same product are both effective at changing consumption of pirated content. Uh, so I think it's really telling that when you have the ability to remove these windows, uh, that people are going to buy it legally if they're given the opportunity. So I'd love to see more of that come from Disney and from other studios out there. No, yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. And a lot of the things that you brought up, uh, again, I made some notes here. So in terms of people would be more than willing to buy stuff it was available and that would make them even more money. Uh, like, for example, uh, they just recently released the Star Wars films in 4K, you know, discs. Obviously, they're still going to sell a lot of money, but I know a lot of people that are just not going to buy them at all because, you know, there's still the versions that have been altered with, you know, all those digital effects and not the originals. Yeah. And so people are just not going to spend, you know, $25 on that 4K Blu-ray if they can get a free version online. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with they're called the um, the specialized edition. Yeah, yeah, the Harmy D specialized, which have you know are HD quality, uh, have been preserved and um, restored by you know a fan or fans, and they are you know excellent quality. You can get those for free, and they look much better than what Disney's putting out. And you know people would be more than happy to spend the money if Disney themselves did that, but they're just not doing it for some reason. Same with the um, 
IMAX versions of the Avengers movies that I said, uh, those would be really high sellers. People want though, want them, and if people had access to them, they would definitely buy them. So, I mean, Disney's not losing any money there. They can clearly make uh, a profit from uh, what people want, but for some reason they just choose not to. Um, same with, you know, any other movie or music. If it's just not available, people are going to try to find ways of getting it for free, but they would be more than willing to spend money if it was available by the original people. But if you have no other option but to pirate, then that's what they're going to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it definitely seems like uh, uh, people, I think, generally want to do the right thing and they want to, you know, you think about these as businesses, in order for more of the thing that you like to get made, you have to support it, right? Like if you like a, a certain movie, you want the actors and the directors and the writers and all the people below the line too, you know, the gaffers and the costume designers and like all of these people who rely on the uh, films as a source of income, you want them to get paid. Um, but when the studios themselves uh, release these films in ways that are kind of anti-consumer, uh, it tends to become uh, kind of a problem. And I think the key is just making it, you know, Steve Jobs talked a lot about this, where he said, you've got to make the legal solution better than the pirated solution or more convenient. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so that's why it was such a big deal when, you know, movies started to get released on iTunes. And you just click a button to download it, uh, you know, to be able to own that. And that would be really great if there were ever a chance to actually own the films that are on iTunes. The problem is that when you go to buy a movie on iTunes, you're actually not technically owning it. You are mm -hmm. getting a license for a DRM locked copy. So basically it's got a certain lock on the file where if you buy it on iTunes, you can't bring it into Final Cut and chop it up or you can't you know, transfer it to a hard drive and share it with a friend. There are locks on it because the studio is so afraid of piracy, which is understandable, but then you look at what people actually want. And what you find is that people do want DRM-free files. And if there's no legal way to purchase a DRM-free file, the only way you can get a DRM-free file is to go on the Pirate Bay or just, you know, torrent it or something. So all these companies are losing out on revenue because they're not creating a product that consumers want. And so I think there's a big disconnect between, you know, what the product that's being produced or being, uh, you know, entered into the market versus the product that maybe people want or would be convenient for them to, to have. Uh, so I think we're kind of at an interesting time right now where uh, there's kind of this divide between consumers and uh, creators and it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Yeah, for sure. We'll see. Uh, hopefully, this whole COVID thing leads to some sort of switch in the business. Uh, we'll just have to wait and find out exactly to what extent. Um, but yeah, it's more of just a waiting game. And hopefully, they're learning some sort of lesson and they make some changes. Well, did you hear about AMC and their decision to stop screening Universal films? Just got announced yesterday. Uh, really crazy stuff. So they Universal made a movie called Trolls World Tour. It's just some dumb kid CGI movie. And they decided because of the coronavirus that they are not going to wait until theaters reopen, but they're just going to release it themselves digitally. So they mm -hmm. did, and it grossed over $100 million worldwide pretty decent uh, draw for a, a film that was released digitally. Uh, and as a result, AMC theaters have said, you know what, when this is all over and we reopen our movie theaters, there will not be a single universal picture screening at our theaters. 
really crazy stuff. It almost seems pretty petty to me, uh, mm-hmm. but it's it's really interesting. I think it's telling of where the the industry is at right now because theaters for the long time to- longest time have been so reliant on the studios to give them something to make money off of. And now if the theaters are by or if the studios are bypassing the theaters, uh, they're missing out on that revenue. And so uh, AMC will probably not be alone in this. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if other studio or other theaters uh, step up for it. Um, but it really is telling um, because even Judd Apatow's new movie, uh, The King of Staten Island, is going uh, video on demand only. I uh, just announced the other day as well. So a lot of these movies are uh, being shifted, whether they're being released digitally or you look at uh, Chris Nolan's new movie, Tenet, or uh, French Dispatch, uh, the new one from Wes Anderson. Uh, those are going to get delayed. Um, so who knows when we'll actually be back in the theaters to actually go see those films. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a tricky situation. Uh, thankfully, uh, from a selfish standpoint, I actually don't have any AMCs near me. Uh, my theaters are regal. So oh, that nice. wouldn't affect me yeah, unless they decide to make some change. But yeah, I don't know. It just seems kind of in a time where you would want cooperation from everybody since everybody's kind of struggling. You wouldn't want to have these fights because that could just lead to more chaos. But we'll just have to wait and see and to see if when theaters reopen. Uh, hopefully, you know, as you mentioned, Tenet is one of my highest anticipated movies of the year, especially being able to see it uh, in 70 millimeter. Oh, uh, yeah, that like, would be great. Yeah, like I did with Dunkirk and uh interstellar so hopefully things are more calm by july but we'll just have to wait and see um obviously if it's the smart move to postpone it as much as it sucks waiting that's definitely the way to go because you want to be able to experience that in a theater with a crowd and not have that just be i mean i don't think we're ever going to get that on demand because nolan would would rather have not would rather not have the movie come out at all than have people watching it on their ipad oh 100 percent. yeah have you ever We'll see. Have you ever seen a movie called uh, Side by Side? Uh, no, I don't think I've actually heard of it. Okay, either. definitely put it on your watch list. It is amazing. It's all about what we're talking about, essentially. It was produced by Keanu Reeves, and it's all about films transition into digital. Mm-hmm. And he has interviews with, uh, you know, Chris Nolan, Martin Scorsese, uh, James Cameron, uh, Steven Soderbergh, like all of these big name directors, and they talk about. Uh, kind of their opinions on the landscape. And there's a part in there where they talk about people watching movies on their phones. And David Lynch is like really angry about it. And uh, and Chris Nolan is talking about how stupid it is that people would watch something on their phones and things like that. And it is really funny to me because growing up, I remember what a transformative experience it was to watch a movie on my iPod with its little like two and a half inch screen, the video iPod. And I laugh about it now, mm-hmm. but I remember uh, because it was a full screen, um, you know, screen, it was a square screen. Um, I would specifically seek out full screen DVDs because they looked better on my iPod. And I had no idea Correct. that they were just chopping <laughs> off the sides of the frame. And I was just buying these movies that are basically like an incomplete. You're not getting the full picture. So I had it was complete ignorance growing up. Like I was like, ooh, let me get the full screen versions of Indiana Jones. And yeah, it was ridiculous. So I definitely feel more uh, enlightened now that I understand uh, what's going on. Uh, but I think it's funny because a lot of people probably don't really think about it a whole lot, uh, specifically with aspect ratios or even something like screen size.
size. I think a lot of people care about what their TV looks like, but specifically for, you know, their laptop, though a lot of people just stream stuff on their laptop or on their phone uh, without regard to much in the way of um, consideration for like the cinematography and the uh, mise-en-scene, as they say in film school. Yeah, yeah. no, and actually, uh, I'm actually guilty of the exact same thing. I remember, you know, when uh, the little movies that we did have, you know, growing up on DVD, um, so, you know, you'd go to the store and there'd be the widescreen edition and full screen. And mm-hmm. I had no idea what widescreen was all about. I just knew that full screen, there wouldn't be any of those black bars. So I thought I'd get, you know, a whole picture and I didn't want like a cropped image. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until later that I found out that that wasn't actually the case. So yeah, I'm guilty of the same thing. And, uh, definitely a complete 180 of where I was at when I first, you know, started getting into movies. I was completely ignorant about that side of things as well and you know most people like i said before that if movie watching isn't their priority and they don't really know about you know aspect ratios they just think that's what the movie's supposed to look like so they'll accept it in any way whether it's boxed or widescreen and it's not really until you show them the difference that they would ever make note of it in the first place yeah totally and i think it's really crazy to me because we are at a point where we are now getting films in widescreen that previously had only been available on full screen DVD. So for a long time, there, there are certain films that I would watch. Uh, an example of this is uh, the Disney movie Heavyweights, uh, which came out in like 95. And it was uh, written by uh, Judd Apatow, uh, you know, who of course went on to do a bunch of other things. And uh, anyways, the movie itself was for the longest time only available in full screen DVD. So you legally could not pay Disney enough money to get this movie in its original aspect ratio until it finally got released on Blu-ray, which was a huge deal in 2012. So you actually started to get the sides of the picture that had been left off for, you know, the better part of a decade. Um, So it is really crazy when there's a movie that you would like to watch. Uh, but you just don't have access to it in its original uh, aspect ratio simply because the studio hasn't made it available. Correct, and that's uh, one of the things that I was going to mention. Uh, also, with the like the different versions of movies, is if they would just release either just two discs or on the same disc um, the two different versions, so that way people can choose you know between what they wanted. Because mm-hmm. some people will prefer, and yeah, you should always get the option. So one thing that I can think of is on the Criterion release of On the Waterfront. Uh, the Marlon Brando movie. Oh yeah, uh, they actually include three different versions, so you can either get it in like the 133, the 166, or 185. And so each one has their pros and cons of what you're getting in the picture, but they give you that option to decide what you want to do. So that would be cool if you know Disney would do that. Like you can watch it either in widescreen or the IMAX version. So it just really depends. It would be nice to just be given that option. Yeah, totally. I think it'd be really cool to have that flexibility. And you have seen, at least I've seen it a couple of times, uh, the one that comes to mind initially is the Shout Factory Blu-ray release of Freaks and Geeks, uh, which came out a few years ago. And that was a huge deal to me because I love that show a lot. And it was amazing to see the rescan of the film. They went back to the 35 millimeter film. Uh, they rescanned it and then they had double discs in the Blu-ray. So basically uh, each Blu-ray disc, uh, there was one disc for full screen and then they did a remastered widescreen version as well. So for the first time you could actually start to see the sides of the picture. And I compared the two um, because you can just take screen grabs and kind of look at uh, both of them there. And uh, the full screen definitely is um, like the original classic, but the widescreen uh, really opens up the picture 
and gives you more information on the screen than you had if you had watched the show on TV when it aired in 2000 on Fox. So I think it's really interesting, specifically with TV shows, when there's a remastering of the original film, uh, you can now watch the TV show in a much higher quality than you ever could have possibly imagined if you watched it on its original TV debut. Oh, yeah, for sure. I uh, That's one of the things that I've uh, most been excited about with this modern era of the Blu-ray releases is seeing old shows that you never would have imagined actually looked so good as originally shot. Uh, seeing them in high definition, it's pretty remarkable to see, uh, you know, old 60s, 70s shows that you would see with like really muted colors and just kind of distorted image like on TV land and stuff on the computer or on the mm -hmm. TV back in the day when you're a kid. And now seeing it in, you know, high definition, it's uh, pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, it's it's unreal. And, and some of my favorites, I mean, I in the collection have really kind of put a focus on uh, shows from the 60s and 70s and even 80s um, that haven't really been available uh, for a while in high definition. Um, so one of the ones that recently came out was uh, Batman, the original series. Uh, from the 60s, mm -hmm. and the color on that just pops. Warner Brothers did a really great yeah. job of that release. And then I also found a great release of uh, the Dick Van Dyke show. And uh, even though it was shot on black and white, the way that they shot it just looks hyper real. Uh, and it is really crazy to see the quality in the image. You look at like the Twilight Zone, too. Uh, they did a great job with that remaster uh, as well. Um, you know, even into the eighties, my wife and I just started rewatching, uh, cheers. You look at the, the remastering job. I mean, it is crazy to see the amount of detail that we can see now that previously had just been, you know, locked away in the film. And, you know, we just didn't have the technology to really be able to take advantage of that and really see with our own eyes what was there all along. Correct. Yeah. We're uh, definitely in a very spoiled time to be able to see these shows in their true quality. Cause yeah, some even look better than you know, some stuff shot today, honestly. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the wild thing is that you get, I mean, especially when you get into stuff that was shot on 70 millimeter, uh, it gets into some really amazing territory. And when you get a chance, I would highly recommend checking out uh, the Cinerama films, which I'm not sure if you've ever heard of them, but they were around in the fifties. And basically Cinerama is what brought about uh, the advent of widescreen. Um, because at the time, you know, in the thirties and forties and early 50s, you had the Academy ratio, you know, the full screen. And it wasn't until Cinerama came around that they were like, okay, let's make it a widescreen picture. And in order for Cinerama to work, they actually shot with three different cameras, all on 70 millimeter. And they shot the film mm -hmm. vertically instead of on landscape mode, and they would piece it together. So in order to watch it in a theater, you'd have to have three projectors going and the images would overlap. And uh, it was basically almost more akin to like a uh, an interactive ride you'd see at like Universal Studios more so than an actual movie. It was kind of a novelty. It's like, oh, here's a first person view of a roller coaster. Here's a first person view of going on a boat, like all of these different things. But Cinerama itself uh, was really the reason why widescreen technology came around. And so this company recently called Flickr Alley uh, has done a remastering of all these Cinerama films that had literally never been released on home video. They had only been in the theaters in the 50s. And so uh, much like the Criterion Collection, they went through and they rescanned all of the original 70 millimeter film and they you know, cleaned it up and did all this color correction. And boy, do they pop. 
uh, they look just unreal. And it's a lot to do with the 70 millimeter format um, because you can get such a high quality image in 70 millimeter uh, that a lot of people don't really get a chance to see unless you have the technology. Uh, so that's why I think it's so cool when theaters do offer a 70 millimeter print of something where you can go see it, uh, you know, blown up on the widescreen like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've, uh, yeah, those are actually Blu-rays that I've always been meaning to pick up, those Cinerama releases. And uh, so, yeah, I don't own those yet. I think I might have seen one at one point at an actual theater, uh, like a specialty theater, to be able to display it that way. But, yeah, they're truly uh, amazing uh, pictures. And they look kind of interesting on Blu-ray because instead of, you know, just like straight black bars on the bottom and the top, there's like kind of like the, cur the curved image to kind of give you the yep. effect to be able to fit all of that. So, yeah, definitely unique and yeah, definitely worth supporting those kind of Blu-rays, and uh, hopefully I can pick them up at some point. They're on my list because, yeah, there's quite a bit of them for sure. Yeah, it's. I mean, they're expensive, uh, and a lot of that has to do with, with Flickr Alley. Um, you know, we can start talking a little bit about the release structure right now because you have, obviously, Criterion Collection doing amazing work. Uh, but then you also have ones that are, you know, maybe a little less known. Uh, you know, you look at Kino Lorber, you look at uh, Twilight Time, Shout Factory, Arrow Academy, uh, Olive Films. All of these companies are basically existing to release films that are sitting on the shelf. And what you come to find out is that the movie studios themselves have these incredible libraries of films that they themselves are not releasing, that they themselves do not want to release. So you have to have these third-party companies come into the picture and basically they say, hey, Warner Brothers or, you know, hey, Universal, we want to release this movie that you guys don't want to release. So we're going to pay you a licensing fee. You're going to give us the original film. We're going to rescan the film for you. And then we're going to release it as a Twilight Time or as a Criterion Collection or something like that. And the problem is, is that it's a limited license. So that's why you'll see some titles go out of print sometimes because their license essentially expires. So in a perfect world, you wouldn't necessarily need these third-party companies if the studios release the films themselves. But the studios don't act like that, and so you need these third-party companies in order to come in and give us access to these films that have literally just been sitting on a shelf for you know decades upon decades. Um, so it is kind of a crazy time to be alive because we now get access to more of these hidden gems than we've ever had access to. Correct, yeah, and then um, that actually reminds me, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this Australian movie called Wake and Fright. No, um, I'm not familiar one, with it. Um, yeah, so that movie, it's actually, so now it's considered, you know, one of Australia's best films, but um, at the time of original release, it didn't make that huge of a splash, and it was kind of, you know, forgotten about, and it's actually been, it had been, you know, lost and locked away for, you know, decades, and it was actually uh, set to be destroyed um, but the original, I think it was the cinematographer, let me double check here, uh, spent years trying to find access to the, you know, the original film to be mm. able to, you know, save it and restore it. And he was able to find the master negative like a week before it was going to be, cause like it was in some sort of storage and they were going to just wipe that storage, um, like just kind of get rid of it yeah. and he was able to find it a week before it. So if he had not been on that search, uh, that film would have been lost completely forever uh, now it's been, you know, remastered and there is a Blu-ray. So stuff like that, stuff that you should definitely treasure that it exists because we could have easily not had it. Um, and it would be along the lines of, you know, other films that have been lost. And then also kind of with the that BBC um, thing where like a lot of those Doctor Who's like early series. Uh, oh, yeah, those, those are, are lost. Missing and they're yeah. long gone. Yeah. 
It so, is yeah, crazy. It's definitely a, an actual an actual threat if you don't uh, preserve and save that stuff. Yeah, I just looked it up on IMDb. Yeah, in Wake and Fright, it says uh, it was an Australian producer spent a ten year quest to try to track it down. He found it in two thousand four in a Pittsburgh warehouse, and it was in a shipping container marked for destruction. So yeah, definitely. It was, yeah, it's insane. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely crazy. And so I, I think it's so interesting because you get stories like that uh, from time to time, and that's actually speaking of you know Criterion, some of the other things that sometimes held up certain Criterion releases because they said, okay, well we've got a print of the film, but this particular segment is damaged. And so they can't really do anything with it until, oh, we just found it in an old abandoned theater in Italy. There's another print of this film, and now we're going to ship it, and now we've got it. You know, it's like sometimes these things are literally so hard to come by um, to actually get a print of the film if it wasn't properly, uh, you know, archived by the studio. Uh, so if you ever get a chance, uh, there's a rabbit hole you can go down. It's called Lost Media Wiki. And oh my goodness, it's one of my favorite websites. And it basically is a catalog of all lost media. So whether it be uh, commercials, films, TV shows, songs, uh, all these other things, uh, basically it's things that were shot and now are not available. Uh, And what's really cool is that you can actually go through and find the media that they have actually found. Because sometimes they have uh, things on the lost media wiki that because they're on the lost media wiki, uh, they start to you know get buzz around them, and then all of a sudden people find them again, and uh, and things are, are back up. So it's really cool to look through and to see how much of our modern world, which we think you know, oh you know, of course we've got a, a you know movie shot in the early two thousands. Of course we've still got that around. It's like no, not always. And uh, and it's really crazy to see how many things you would assume we would just have in perpetuity, uh, but how much stuff has really been lost to time. Uh, you know, you look at uh, I don't know if you followed much of the uh, Universal fire that happened in 2008. Do you hear about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the, yeah. With the, all the music. Yeah, I mean it's crazy. And the so master recordings, yeah. the the crazy thing about this is that the news story breaks two thousand eight. Oh, there's a fire at Universal Studios Hollywood, and they're like it burned down the uh, King Kong ride, and that's it. And that's all that we really heard about it. Oh, there's a fire at Universal Studios, and then literally a decade later, like ten years later, we finally get the real story, which is that actually in that same fire. There were a bunch of master tapes that were burned and Universal hit it for a decade. They hit it for 10 years and they started, there was internally, they called it Project Phoenix. And it was trying to reclaim what had been lost. These master tapes and things like that, uh, all based on this studio fire. And, uh, you know, fortunately, a lot of them had been digitalized already. Like the losses aren't nearly as bad as what a lot of people had initially thought. Um, but this is not the first backlot fire that has happened. You know, I think it was in the late 20s where there's a huge fire that lost so many uh, silent films. Uh, there's a, I think it was estimated that about like, I think it was like 80 to 90% of silent films that are ever made are just lost now. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that it was made on uh, nitrate film. Uh, so that, of course, was incredibly flammable. And, you know, they would actually burn the films when they were done oftentimes. I don't know if you heard about that. They would actually, they in the original, you know, silent film era, they never really thought much about the preservation of the films. And once the film had been screened, they just burned it afterwards and they just used it as kindling, uh, which is just insane to think about now. But that's kind of how it was done back in the day. 
Yeah, it's uh, definitely, uh, when you, you consider all that, it's a miracle that, you know, you get Blu-ray releases of films that came out in, like, 1920, and they look pristine, because so many would just have been destroyed, so the few that managed to make it out, uh, definitely other films that are well worth purchasing and supporting those uh, restorations, so that way they can continue doing that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another, brings me to another topic of people complaining about prices. Like, yeah, it's, you know, expensive to purchase these kinds of films, but if you don't do that, then there's going to be nothing at all. So it's one of those things where, like, you know, no one's making you buy all these movies. If you have an access to them that's cheaper, definitely go for it. But it does help if it's a movie that you really like, definitely show your support, spend the $20, because it's pretty much nothing short of a miracle that you can even have that option in the first place. Oh, 100%. And I think that one of the um, tenets of metamodernism is this idea of what they call participatory culture. Uh, So in order for something to exist or for uh, there to be more of it, you have to participate in something and actively support it. Uh, So especially when you get to these smaller boutique Blu-ray labels, uh, you know, yeah, it's really expensive to license these films and to be able to remaster them. And it's painstaking. You know, you see what the Criterion Collection does frame by frame by frame, removing flecks of dust and dirt, debris, all this stuff, color correcting. I mean, it's wild. Um, one of the ones that uh, I saw on your Instagram a while ago and one that I was blown away by was the restoration of uh, King of Jazz, uh, the film from the 1930. It was actually just 1930. And it was slightly, it's a color film, um, but it's just like, it's got muted colors. Um, but the 4K uh, resolution, uh, just like they just remastered the heck out of it. Uh, and it just looks unreal. And so it's really cool when you have uh, companies who will spend so much time and effort uh, to really remaster and to get these movies looking as best they can uh, to really preserve them for future generations to watch and enjoy. Yeah, it's a yeah. Those are always one of my uh, my favorite things to look forward to when they uh, when the Blu-rays come out to see the comparisons of what it used to look like and what it looks like now. Uh, it's always uh, always impressive. Oh, totally. I mean, it's it is crazy to me how much time and effort is spent uh, to remaster some of these films. And obviously, whoever's doing it has a lot more patience than me, uh, because if you imagine 24 frames a second, you got a two hour movie. Uh, that's a lot of work that you've got to spend frame by frame going through there and correcting things and then going through the remastering process. Uh, it is just unreal. Um, but I'm glad that these companies exist because if they didn't, there's so many movies that ju- we just wouldn't have access to. Um, so the interesting thing to me is the amount of movies that I've found on uh, something like Amazon Uh, that have never seen a physical release. Uh, That's one of the things that uh, is frustrating to me because I want to buy these movies. I want to own them. I don't want to rent them streaming-wise because a streaming customer is a repeat customer. If you only have streaming services, you can never really break free of those chains. So I would love to be able to just buy some of these things to own it outright. Um, But a lot of times we're not even given that option. And we're just basically, oh, you can only stream it. Uh, you know, and there are some times where it is available on physical media, but it's only available in uh, on DVD in standard definition. So then if you want it in high definition, you have Correct, to yeah. you have to stream it. And so, I mean, there are so many countless shows, uh, you know, Parks and Rec, The Office, Louie, Wilfred, 
the league, like Archer, like all of these shows have only had partial Blu-ray releases where they've had one or two seasons on Blu-ray and then everything else is DVD. And you look now, uh, HBO even, HBO has for the longest time, they've put out stuff on Blu-ray releases uh, as well as DVD. And now for some of them, they're just going DVD only. Uh, you know, the latest uh, season of Silicon Valley and, uh, and Curb Your Enthusiasm are going DVD only. So it's clear that some of these companies aren't investing as heavily in physical media, uh, which is a real shame because there is a percentage of the population that does want to go out and buy things. But when they go out to buy things, they're finding that the product is inferior. You know, you only get it at a certain quality, even though these shows were probably shot at 4K. So all of a sudden you got to compress a 4K image down to 480p. Mm-hmm. Like, that's garbage. Correct, yeah. And then the other risk besides quality uh, with having something only on streaming is the creator or the owner of that content can change the information or can, you know, re-edit it, can make modifications and people will never know the difference or they'll never be able to see their original version because mm-hmm. no other version exists on disc. So, you know, thankfully with like stuff like Star Wars, it had been at one point released in its original form. So that will always be there no matter how many changes they make. Yeah. But if something only ever came out digitally, they can change it at their will. You'll never know the difference or you can't do anything about it because there is no other way to own it. Um, but yeah, that's another thing that is kind of risky with today. Uh, things being only on streaming. Also, in terms of just general, you know, if somebody wants to make video essays or montages just for you know creative purposes and not for like, you know, making profits, if it's only available digitally, you can't really do much there. So one example that I always think of is Master of None, which a lot of great moments throughout that series, uh, throughout the two seasons, but you can't really have access to it unless you go to Netflix and watch it through there. Because mm-hmm. if you go online, the only clips that exist are what Netflix puts out yep. um, or if somebody you know records it st- straight from their phone. So it's not going to be the same quality. Um, so you can't really do that. If somebody wanted to write like a video essay of why Master of None is a great show, you're kind of limited to what clips you can use. I think some countries do get um, – it's weird. Like some countries will get Blu-ray releases. Others won't of stuff. And you'd figure that the U.S. with it being like the largest you know market, they'd get it too, but they don't. Uh, one example that I can think of actually is uh, Midsommar. So, you know, that oh, movie yeah. just came out a year ago. It was, yeah, so it was shot in 8K. Uh, so raw 8K, they mastered it in 4K. So it's a true 4K file. Wow. But only a, only a regular Blu-ray was released in the U.S., not a 4K Blu-ray. Mm. However, Italy, Italy is the only country that got a 4K Blu-ray, which just, for me, just doesn't make sense because obviously more people would buy it in the U.S. There's mm. a bigger market than... Uh, Italy, so I'm just stuff like that. Uh, that never stuff makes drives sense to me, me crazy. And one it, country got it in Fort. Yeah, it's so prevalent, and it's more prevalent than you might think. Uh, specifically because the markets are different. I've done a lot of research on it, trying to figure out exactly why it is. Um, specifically because here in America, we're so reliant upon streaming services that physical media sales aren't what they used to be. And Blu-ray releases, and specifically 4K Blu-ray, they're very expensive. Uh, Steve Jobs actually called Blu-ray a bag of hurt. And that was specific to Sony's licensing fees that they stipulated. Uh, So Sony as a company created Blu-ray as a technology. And in order to make a movie and put it on Blu-ray, you have to pay Sony a certain amount of money in order for the film to be on a Blu-ray disc. DVD licensing fees are much lower and so you end up having it cheaper to release a Blu-ray than, or a DVD rather than a Blu-ray. 
And so when you get to certain countries, there are also uh, there's different markets available, uh, different consumer habits. And so sometimes they will end up releasing something on Blu-ray in one country that's not on Blu-ray in another country. And what really drives me crazy is the stuff that's made in the United States gets released on DVD in the United States, but on Blu-ray in other countries. And this has happened a number of different times with TV shows that I watch and uh, movies and things like that. And it's one of the most frustrating things because these Blu-rays are then locked to a region. The Region B Blu-rays and mm-hmm. you need a special Blu-ray player to, to access them. And so the whole media landscape is incredibly fragmented because the studios insist on it being that way. Because at the end of the day, it's not about the ease of access through which consumers can watch these films, but rather it's about whether or not the studios can make a profit off of the consumers. And so they end up arbitrarily drawing these lines from country to country to country and region to region um, because they find that, oh, we can release the movie here in the U.S., but then we can wait a little bit and release it in another country and make more money. So it ends up being kind of this very fragmented platform. And that's one of the reasons why people turn to piracy is because, oh, something got released in Europe in this quality, but we can only legally purchase it here in the U.S. at this quality. So they end up having to basically break the law in order to get the thing that they want in the quality that they want, which is really frustrating because if the studios just gave us what we wanted, we wouldn't have to circumvent the situation and we could just be law-abiding citizens. But, uh, you know, the powers that be do what they want, I guess. Correct. Yeah, that's unfortunately how it will always be. So anytime something pops up that you like, it's best to buy it because you never know how long that opportunity is going to last. Oh, totally. And that's the thing is, you know, releases can come and go. And, you know, there have definitely been releases that have gone out of print. Uh, One of the ones that comes to mind is uh, the original 1960s show, uh, The Monkees. Pretty influential. I don't know if you know Bob Raffleson. He uh, he's in the Criterion Collection. He did uh, Five Easy Pieces, uh, King of Marvin Gardens. And uh, and he shot a movie with the monkeys called Head, and that is also mm-hmm. in the Criterion Collection. And anyways, he made uh, the show The Monkeys. It was like a you know 1960s kids show, but it was really surreal and kind of goofy and fun. And uh, anyways, Rhino they ended up doing this amazing Blu-ray remaster, uh, but they limited it to like a thousand copies or something like that, and you could only get the series on Blu-ray if you bought into this huge box set, which included a bunch of these like LPs and uh, CDs and things like that. And it's like, I just want the Blu-ray of the show. I don't want to spend $250, $300 on this Blu-ray box set uh, to get all this extra stuff for, it was literally like 15 episodes, half hour a piece. Like it's incredibly expensive uh, to do that, but then it's out of print. So now I miss that boat and now I can go on to eBay And it's way more expensive if I wanted to buy the show. So it's really frustrating because you have that window of time to buy something. And I sat on it and I didn't do it. And now, you know, I can't find the show anywhere. So it's not lost media. I mean, it's available, but it's just out of print. So it's just difficult to get your hands on some of that stuff. And, uh, you know, same happens with stuff in the Criterion Collection. You know, some of the stuff uh, people often talk about the third man or the man who fell to earth. Uh, You know, those movies are tough to come by because once they're, you know, made and sold, if you didn't get a chance to buy it, then, you know, it's not going to be at your local Barnes & Noble. Correct. Yeah. And thankfully, yeah, a lot of those previously retired movies are being released by other companies, at least. So if something goes out of print because they lost the license, um, somebody else will release it. Or as in the case, like recently, Army of Shadows, the Melville film, 
Mm-hmm. That was recently re-released after being out of print for a few years. So, yeah, thankfully there's always a chance of getting them back. But, yeah, if it's it can sometimes take years to get into that position again to be able to find them. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, right now I'm actually just going through your library. Oh, nice. Goods. Yeah. I, uh, I'm actually I'm glad you have 24 Frames, the Kira Stami movie. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. I probably butchered that name. But, yeah, I still need to watch that. It looks like a really cool experimental type of thing. And it's always amazing when you get a release from someone and then they just pass away just shortly after. So it's just like kind of like that final gift in a way. Yeah, it's my favorite to be able to look retrospectively at a director's filmography and to kind of see, especially as that last final piece of film uh, gets kind of set into place, like looking at it in the context of their entire filmography, uh, and especially with that film in particular, uh, I have not seen the full thing yet, uh, just kind of heard about it and uh, watched a trailer, but I've been meaning to dive into it, and it definitely looks like it's got the ability to kind of almost deconstruct film in a way, and I love to be able to, you know, see that come out of a filmmaker after having just a career long uh life in in film yeah for sure yeah definitely um you know a lot of people refer to you know like really good shots in movies as like a visual painting but this actually looks like a visual painting because they're just like you know static shots and things are happening so i'm really uh looking forward to seeing that and then actually uh right next to it i see that you have 24 hour party people which i just i just recently watched for the first time a few months ago nice i have not seen it yet Yeah, I've been oh, meaning to, yeah, I've been meaning to watch it. So uh, please uh, give me your synopsis. Tell tell me a little bit about it from your recent viewing. Yeah, it's pretty much uh, it's like filmed in a mockumentary style. So you know, like shaky camera, just kind of following them as if it's a documentary, and it's following the life of this. I'm trying to think, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Let me look it up here. Uh, but it's a real it's a real story. Uh, someone who's really involved in like the production and electro like club scene during the eighties. Mm. See, twenty four hour. But yeah, it's got a really good cast. It's got uh, Andy Serkis is in there because um, you know you usually see him behind mocap suits, but he's actually in there. Uh, Steve Coogan is the main. Patty Considine. Yeah, it's, it's got a really good cast. Um, yeah, it's Tony Wilson. So yeah, it's uh, in the Manchester scene from late seventies and eighties. Yeah, um, just following his kind of rise as uh, you know trying to start a club and you know promote artists. But yeah, it's a really good movie, uh, filmed as if it was kind of like an Office episode. So it's got you know kind of like that do it your own style so yeah it's a really good movie i definitely recommend it i had never even heard of it until last year honestly and then i saw it knew nothing about it and really liked it it's it's almost the opposite for me because i actually came across this film when i was probably in eighth or ninth grade and i didn't even know it was a film at the time i only got it as a soundtrack uh actually yeah so I used to get a bunch of soundtracks from, well, just albums in general from my local library and listen to them. And this uh, album came up, 24-Hour Party People. I was like, oh, what is this? You know, And it had a bunch of great 80s jams on it. So I used to, to rock that CD. And it's funny because just recently did I realize that it's an actual movie and did I obtain said movie. Uh, mm-hmm. So now it's in the, in the watch list there, but I'm excited to dive into it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's worth the check out. And then, um, yeah, because I think... I think it automatically opened up your library to uh, be organized by alphabetical. So I'm just seeing all the titles with numbers right now. Oh, yeah. Just, you know, films that pop up. So I'm also seeing, you know, 12 Angry Men, which is another really good one. Uh, yeah, checked, Sydney Lumet you, film. Yeah. Did you uh, also have, you also have Failsafe? Yes, indeed. Yeah. I believe yeah. if you actually click on the movie itself, you should be able to click on the director. 
Uh, I have pretty much every Sidney Lumet film I can get my hands oh, on, and uh, and Failsafe. Uh, we were actually just about to watch it the other day, um, but uh, didn't get a chance to. I was actually on your recommendation because um, I saw your your Instagram story about it, and so good, yeah. it's been it's been sitting in my collection for uh, I think a, a few months now because Criterion just uh, re released it. Uh, I believe it was a DVD before, and they finally put it out on on Blu Ray there. So. I was looking forward to diving into it there, but it uh, looks like you just watched it. What'd you think? Really, really. Lo- it's another one that I had no idea. I just blind bought it just, you know, because I like that director so much. I figured it'd be a safe blind buy. And yeah, I'm really glad that I didn't know anything about it because it all was pretty much, I had never even seen like a screenshot of it. I just knew the cover when it was released on Blu-ray, put it on. Everything was brand new. I never, never knew what to expect. I didn't know what the plot was about. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was really, really really good so anytime i recommend a movie like that where it's best to not know anything i kind of try to not really show screenshots or clips and i just you know post a picture of the cover and just say you know watch it don't read anything about it yeah i think there's definitely a value in going in blind to films i think that you know there is a place and time for trailers and i think trailers in and of themselves are their own unique art form but mm-hmm. I do think there is a value in just kind of being totally surprised by what you see, um, you know, especially when you don't necessarily know, like, the tone of the movie. If you're like, okay, wait, is this a, a, an action movie? Is this a comedy? Is this a drama? And just kind mm-hmm. of watching it unfold. Um, because I think that if you have this notion of, like, this film is this type of film uh, and then it changes tonally, I think that that can surprise you in the best way. Uh, have you ever seen any films by uh, Jeff Baina? Um, he did uh, this film called Joshi, and uh, what was the other film he did? But um, definitely Joshi and Life After Beth are two great examples of films that just shift tonally without mm-hmm. necessarily telling you beforehand. And I don't want to spoil anything about these two films. Uh, Joshi hmm. and Life After Beth, I'd say, if you haven't seen them yet, uh, definitely well worth your time. Yeah, I'll definitely have to ch- check it out because I see that uh, Joshi has Thomas Middleditch. Yeah, uh, he's always he's always cool to watch. So yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. Definitely, um, and it's he works with a lot of great people that are normally known for comedy, um, but he shifts them in different ways for for uh, dramatic purposes, which I think is pretty cool. I'm actually looking a little bit more into Joshi without you know reading into the story, of course, mm-hmm. and I see that it has Alex Ross Perry. Which oh yeah, I'm glad you brought him up. Do you uh, do you know his films? I know of them. I still haven't seen any of them, which I know I'm slacking on that, but. I do really want to see it because he's also kind of another one of those truly independent voices of right now. Oh, definitely. I mean, Alex Ross Perry is one of those unsung heroes of independent film right now. And uh, Alex Ross Perry has a film that uh, I think you would really like, uh, Listen Up, Philip. Um, It's a great one with um, Jason Schwartzman and uh, Elizabeth Moss. And it's uh, it's definitely worth your time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've always uh, what first caught my attention uh, when I first discovered who he was, was just kind of like the art style of his posters. Kinda yeah. Like for, yeah, like Listen Up, Philip or uh, The Color Wheel, like you mentioned. They kind of have like that hand-drawn, almost animated look to him. Mm-hmm. And that was what kind of first caught my eye. But yeah, I'll definitely check him out. He's an also he's also uh, really interesting because he's also another one of those directors um, where, you know, he writes and directs his own stuff. But then he'll have a couple of stuff that he just wrote and didn't direct. So uh, he also did that Christopher Robin Disney movie. Oh, uh, yeah. He was one of the screenwriters for that. Uh, I so remember that reading when, about that. Yeah. Yeah, when you see stuff like that where a director 
has his own kind of filmography and then they'll do like uh, some random project here and there where they're just the writer or something like that. Yeah, it's always fascinating, especially when you realize uh, with certain directors that they like to act as well. So sometimes these writer-directors will then just pop up in other things that they didn't even write or direct. They're just showing up as actors. Um, so you, you definitely will see that uh, with somebody like uh, Mark Duplass as well. Yeah, yeah for uh, sure. You know, he'll just pop up here and there. And, yeah, same uh, with um, Noah, Noah Baumbach. So he doesn't really act as far as I know. I've never seen him act. But he also has a thing where... You know, he's done all of his movies, but then he randomly wrote or was one of the co-writers for Madagascar 3. <laughs> I remember when I first learned that. Oh, my gosh. Just, yeah. Just seems so random. Well, have you seen or heard of the film Highball? Uh, I've heard the name. I'm not sure. I don't know much too. OK, about so it. it is a film. It's it's hard to get a hold of. Uh, I actually talked to, to Chris Eigenman about it because he's in it. <clears throat> and it is a Noah Baumbach film. Uh, it was his third film. Actually, you know what? Yeah, it was his third film. Uh, so he had Kicking and Screaming, and then he had Mr. Jealousy. And then after Mr. Jealousy, there were some leftover film reels, and they were basically able to cobble together this this third film, Highball, with the mm-hmm. leftover money and uh, and film from, the, uh, from Mr. Jealousy. And it's basically a bottle episode of a movie. Uh, so it basically takes place in a New York apartment and it shows different parties and they cycle through. And it's one of the rare instances where uh, Noah actually acts in his own film. But he infamously scrubbed his name off of the film as a, ty- as a director. Uh, so because he didn't really uh, like the finished product. And the weird thing about the film is that it's hard to get a hold of as a result. There's a DVD floating around that I was able to get. Um, mm-hmm. but other than that, it's like not available anywhere. And the DVD itself is like super glitchy. Like there's scenes that are kind of like chopped off in weird ways. So it was like a half finished project that never actually came fully uh, to fruition. Um, but it's still kind of an interesting experiment. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. I, I do see here that you have it, um, in your library here and it's one of those rare 480Ps. Uh, yeah, it's it's a shame. I, I hate having those, but sometimes that's all you got, you know? Sometimes sure, yeah. they, it's like, well, would you rather not have it at all or would you rather have it in, you know, not the best quality? Uh, so sometimes you just kind of have to make that compromise. Yeah, how did you say that you got a hold of it? Just So, yeah, I got it through uh, Amazon. They had a DVD. Some distributor was doing it, and it mm. was super sketch because it comes on a blank white DVD, like no printing on the DVD or anything like that. So, Weird, yeah. Uh, speaking of which, do you know much about MOD DVD or MOD Blu-ray? Have you heard of that? Uh, no, I've never heard of them. So this is a practice that Amazon in particular is infamous for. So MOD stands for Manufacture On Demand uh, DVD or Blu-ray. Now, in this case, it is a um, cost-saving measure. So if there's like Mm -hmm. a show that, you know, maybe wasn't super popular, they can do MOD DVD, so they'll just burn it uh, on demand. Now, the thing about MOD DVDs is that they are DVD-Rs. So they're the, if you look on the bottom of the disc, it's like a blue, like the stuff you'd buy at like Target or Walmart. It's basically a, a you know, consumer-grade um, DVD, and they, they will burn the episodes of whatever TV show or, you know, movie sometimes onto this for you. Now, the problem is, is that sometimes that's all they offer. A, a lot of uh, shows recently have been going to MOD DVD only. Um, So that means that if you, you know, if the show was shot in HD, uh, 4K sometimes, 
uh, and you want to buy it, the only way that you can actually obtain it was on MOD DVD. Um, the, mm. so the back half of Wilfred and Louie, uh, and I think even the League, uh, a bunch of FX shows started to go this way. And so that meant that basically you were getting really low-grade files and they would charge you the full price of the film or the TV episodes. They'd charge you $30, $40 for them to burn it to you on a DVD and get it in like 480p. Uh, so it's really frustrating sometimes because that's sometimes the only way to actually obtain the stuff to get it in the library, so to speak. So fortunately, there's been new innovations that have come out that have allowed for you know, web captures and stuff like that to actually get a full 1080p version of something that legally just they don't provide options to purchase on the open market. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to see that, you know, if you do want to obtain something in the highest quality, sometimes you have to take a few creative leaps and bounds on the Internet to actually do so. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's uh, like you mentioned before, it's one of those things where it's nice to be able to get that option, but you just wish it was in a better format or better uh, uh, method. Well, and especially when you look at the transition between film to digital, there was a period of time where stuff was shot on video. And video is kind of this this in between between, you know, the it's still video is technically an analog format, um, but it used magnetic tape. And so video itself is notoriously hard to upscale um, because you're just kind of stuck. It's not something that you can go back and increase the quality for. Uh, so there's a handful of TV shows specifically that will not ever really be able to be fully HD um, because it was shot on video. Um, one great example, though, I would say of a video restoration. Did you see Hoop Dreams, the Criterion release of that? Yeah, actually, that's exactly what uh, what I thought when you said about uh, you know video and upscaling it. Yeah, that's another one where I thought, I mean, can they really do much to upgrade the original DVD? But I did see you know comparisons, and you do get somewhat of uh, a big improvement, especially with like the colors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's pretty much the max that you can get, you know, it's in terms of kind of the, the vibrancy, the colors, but in terms of the resolution, you're not going to get that much sharper of an image um, because there's only so much quality to be had. Um, there was a great uh, Blu-ray release in Australia of uh, Cosmos, which was the original PBS docuseries from uh, Carl Sagan. And uh, it was like shot in like the early 80s, I think it was 1980, and uh, they have a little warning label on the Blu-ray, and they're basically warning you, saying that this is just upscaled video, uh, so, so be warned that it's not true Blu-ray quality, but they managed to clean it up pretty darn well over the, the DVD copies. Uh, the unfortunate truth, though, is that it's only available in Australia, uh, the Blu-ray edition. You can only get the DVDs here in the U.S., so... Uh, fortunately, I got myself a region-free player and was able to to convert those and get those up in the collection as well. Yeah, and then a, another title, speaking of Hoop Dreams, uh, is the recently released Blu-ray Criterion for Bamboozled, the Spike Lee. Oh, story. yeah. Yeah, so that's that was also where, video. Yeah, also video, because uh, I was reading how they did it, you know, to save money and be able to shoot it quick. So a lot of that, again, the quality, you won't really notice much of a difference from the original DVDs, except for... I think there are um, sequences in the film that were shot on 16 millimeter. Mm -hmm. um, so I haven't seen, I don't really know much about that movie. I haven't seen it myself, but if you look at screenshots, most of it is kind of like that lower quality video style, but then 
there's like their performance sequences those were shot on film and you can definitely tell that those have been upgraded mm-hmm. it's Cause, it's yeah, funny because yeah. i actually just uh toss bamboozle in the collection but i haven't watched it yet but it looked yeah from the screenshots you could see there was a bit of an improvement um but it's definitely not leaps and bounds uh like you would with with a film upgrade Correct. Yeah, there's just no beating a uh, good old 16 millimeter or 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter if it's you know properly restored and they don't take away the grain. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there have been some really good 16 millimeter uh, restoration efforts. Uh, well, one recently, it wasn't much of a restoration. Was uh, Moonrise Kingdom uh, that was shot on 16 millimeter. Um, so that was great to be able to get Criterion to do um, like just a, a great preservation for that. Um, but also Shout Factory did a really great restoration of a show called uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse. It was on in the 80s, kind of a crazy uh, show with a lot of wild colors and backgrounds and whatnot. And they shot that on 16mm and Shout Factory went to the original negatives and they just got such a pristine quality out of the film that, you know, you just never would have been able to see if you were watching it in the 80s on your fuzzy TV. Correct. Yeah, which reminds me a lot of our conversation from the last talk where we talked about how it's pretty uh miraculous seeing all these old shows that you would have either seen through like old vhs tapes or gone uh, can't think of the channel tv yeah tv land yeah tv so land yeah like you know brady bunch and you know little house on the prairie which i watched a lot of as a kid so yeah seeing those go from that to blu-ray it's just really really cool Oh, totally. I mean, it's it's amazing to be able to see that transition take place. The the crazy thing that we don't see is the months and months of work. I mean, I've just been getting through some 80s shows uh, like Miami Vice and uh, Magnum P.I. and getting those in the collection. And you're talking an insane amount of film that they would have had to scan in. I mean, these are eight, nine seasons of 22 episodes apiece, each being an hour long. And it's just yeah. such an insane amount of footage to be able to digitalize and try to restore. Um, so a lot of these companies, uh, specifically one called Mill Creek, uh, has been putting out a lot of these complete series Blu-ray releases, um, but they don't really have the budget to be able to go in like Criterion does and actually clean up the um, individual frames. Because, I mean, it's just a, such an extensive workload that, that would be. So they ended up uh, just kind of color correcting a little bit and getting it out. But it's just amazing to, the, the fact that some of these shows are available in 1080p to be able to, to get the full spectrum there is pretty cool. Correct. Yeah, it's one of those things where you, you got to be thankful, like whatever the price is, like if you're, especially if you're a fan of that show. Uh, you got to support it and get it. Like the prices aren't even too bad either. So if you think about how much you get, the prices can be like what? 60 60 70 dollars for a full series but usually it's a pretty good value especially with all the bonus features and things like that um i've always liked to be able to dive into kind of the making of and some of the um commentary tracks and stuff like that correct yeah that's always a big part of uh which they've you know been cutting back down on a lot because most people don't really do like they don't really care much about that anymore so they don't really have that many loaded blu-rays nowadays so it's always a miracle if you get more than half an hour of stuff yeah compared to before where you'd get hours and uh which actually makes me think of recently there was a guy who was the kind of like the producer for the home media release of knives out mm. so him with him and ryan johnson ryan johnson you know being a huge cinephile himself he likes his special features and he wants to make sure it's a good package so they did you know pretty loaded release with knives out so they didn't know if 
that the movie was going to be necessarily that popular, but they still wanted to, you know, document every part of the production. Yeah, for totally. It's eventual release. And the guy said that, you know, they had to do a lot of convincing to the studios to get that funded. Cause you know, most people don't care about that nowadays. They just want like, is the cover cool? You know, is it steelbook packaging related stuff? Not the actual material on the disc. Mm-hmm. So that's cool that they actually took the time and wanted to make that. Um, so if you look at the spec sheet for that Blu-ray release for Knives Out, it's got like a full documentary on there divided into different parts with the making of. And yeah, definitely you don't see that uh, nowadays. Yeah, no, I love it that they actually put in the time and the effort to be able to do that. You know, Knives Out was such an interesting movie because it's an original screenplay that was a mid-range budget. In this day and age, you usually get a lot of movies that are over a hundred, you know, hundred, two hundred million dollar budgets, but they're usually remakes, reboots, superhero movies, stuff like that. And then you got the indie movies that are made for usually under ten million, you know, and those are the ones that go to Sundance and stuff like that. Um, but to see a mid-range budget, you know, I think it was around $40 million for, for Knives Out. It allows for this kind of mid-range where you've got more financial freedom than a typical indie movie to do more creative things. But you don't have this huge financial pressure of like a giant tentpole film. So there's kind of this happy medium. And it would be great to see more and more studios go this direction rather than having one big bet on this particular movie. And this is going to be the movie that's going to get us our our egg Mm -hmm. for the year. And specifically, since Lionsgate produced uh, Knives Out... It'll be interesting to see where they end up as well, because apparently uh, due to COVID-19, they are not doing so hot as a studio. So I'm really hoping that uh, they and some other studios will be able to, you know, see this thing through to the other side. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Speaking of it, I was doing a little bit of research here. So I clicked on, you know, Lionsgate here on Wikipedia Mm -hmm. and they have a list here of the highest grossing Lionsgate films. Mm -hmm. And so they have the top 10 and only three of these movies of the top 10 are originals. So the first five are either a Hunger Games movie or a Twilight Saga movie. Right after that is Day After Tomorrow. So that's an original one. And then right after that, John Wick Chapter 3, which it's an original project, but it's still you know sequel. And then right after that is Knives Out. So that's actually pretty impressive that a completely original, not related to any franchise or anything, is one of Lionsgate's most successful movies in the box office. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, and I think it kind of took people by surprise a bit. I was fortunate enough to be able to see it at the premiere here in San Francisco in Japantown. And Ryan Johnson and Chris Evans came and uh, were able to do a Q&A afterwards. And uh, they were talking kind of about the doubt that some people had initially in being able to finance this type of movie and to kind of make a, a whodunit mystery murder Uh, with a dose of uh, dark comedy in the mix. And they were talking about um, just the fact that some people didn't think it was the right climate. You know, oh, people wouldn't be interested in a movie like this. And so it's just cool to see the fact that this did so well at the box office. You know, speaking of Knives Out, uh, you know, since that movie did so well and surprised critics and box office numbers, they are, you know, of course, making a sequel. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, if it'll stay in the same budget range, if they'll even take a risk and try to make it even more expensive or cheaper now. Um, So yeah, we'll have to wait and see. I'm sure Ryan Johnson's been taking the time to work on that script while all this is going down. So that way they can get to work on that. And even though that this is like a sequel, it's going to have besides Daniel Craig as, you know, the detective, it's going to have a completely different cast. So it's going to really be, you know, up to his writing to be able to keep 
know people coming back to watch it because it'll be a really a testament to his skill because it's not going to be banking off of oh I just want to go see you know Chris Evans again because it's not going to have Chris Evans it's going to have a completely different cast so it's going to be a really interesting way of doing a sequel but it's not really a sequel where it's guaranteed to make the same amount of money or mm-hmm. have that same amount of success because it has completely different people besides Daniel Craig who's going to be the one returning as the detective so yeah if you can do it two times in a row then that'll be uh really really uh, impressive yeah i i like that idea for a sequel there not necessarily having to involve everyone but almost like a spin-off movie so to speak uh where somebody kind of goes into a different direction so yeah i look forward to uh to seeing that next i actually just uh was downloading the script for knives out uh mm-hmm. i've got a yeah. website that will sometimes post that and so uh, it's always interesting as somebody who likes to write as well, uh, just to kind of see the breakdown of how the script was broken out and, uh, you know, the scene direction and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things as well when a movie comes out and it's, you know, gearing to be, you know, the Oscar season and they start posting the scripts, the PDFs. And I always like to go through them and read them. And then there's always going to be that one film that doesn't get posted. And I kind of get <laughs> upset because I want to read the script for it. I think, yeah. uh, can't th- oh yeah i think so uncut gems um at the moment last i checked you can't get that screenplay anywhere like it was posted at one point but if you go into the website it'll say uh link temporarily disabled which i don't know why but i mean the movie's been out i don't know why they are not posting it i mean it's not like they're preventing anything from coming out but that's another script that i'd want to see because you know how it's uh they've said that it went through like 10 different versions over the years yeah they finally got adam sandler to say yes so that'd be another interesting one to read. Oh, totally. I mean, that that film went through so many revisions and you got to wonder uh, what the script looked like with different people attached to it. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you heard about kind of the, the difficulty getting uh, they didn't actually write it initially for Kevin Garnett. Mm-hmm. Um, it was ultimately for uh, I'm terrible with basketball players names, so I'm not even going to attempt to remember it. Uh, but it was for a different uh, basketball player in like the mid to late 2000s. He was actually uh, a very famous black Jewish uh, basketball player. And so the whole angle of like wanting it for the, for the religious reasons and, and uh, Jewish reasons uh, made more sense uh, in that revision. And so they kind of had to play around with it a little bit in order to uh, to get it to work with Kevin Garnett. Um, but I still think it was a great film, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I mean, did you uh, think it was a good one? Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, it was, that was my first Safdie Brothers experience, actually. Yeah, mine really too, actually. With, yeah, with how they were able to keep the momentum. And, you know, unfortunately, the movie itself was great, but I had a really bad movie theater experience watching it, and that kind of brought down the uh, the experience a little bit because uh, I had these people behind me just nonstop talking. And it was really, you know, frustrating me and I didn't want to be the guy, you know, to turn over and tell him to shut up. But that was going on pretty much the entire movie. So that was kind of on my mind as well as watching the movie. So that kind of brought the experience down a little bit. But the movie itself was really good. And I look forward to rewatching it again in silence without (laughs) without that. But Yeah. yeah, definitely one of those movies that came out of nowhere. I wasn't really expecting it since I didn't know the directors really. I didn't know they were even making a new one. It just kind of came out of nowhere when they dropped the trailer and the rest was history. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm looking forward to actually going through uh, some of their previous films uh, to be able to kind of get uh, an understanding. I downloaded one a little while ago called Heaven Knows What, and uh, it's got one of my favorite artists in there, Ariel Pink. He does a quick cameo as well as the guy who 
you probably haven't seen it. It's it's a, a viral video of this this guy who gets really upset at a trumpet player, and uh, he's like a short man, short angry man, and he's yelling at another guy, and he says like silence serves as the foundation for creativity, and like all of these ridiculous statements. He's like, I walked Bob Dylan on stage, and you know, 1972, and who are you? You don't get to play here, and it's just it's the most obnoxious, uh, pretentious rant. Anyways, that guy's in the film, and uh, and I've been meaning to check it out, but I've heard the Safdie brothers have a, a pretty extensive... Uh, they, they haven't done a whole lot, but the film that they've done has uh, has been really well-received, uh, so I'm excited to see kind of where they go next, and if any of their films end up in Criterion, which I think they might, uh, would be pretty cool as well. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they, uh, they'll they definitely get to that point. I mean, they've... Uh because of the Adam Sandler connection and seem to be pretty good friends with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. They had that one podcast recently with A24 um, and it was PTA, you know, just kind of conversing with the two brothers. So yeah, they seem to be pretty well established with that. And he seems to be a pretty big fan because, you know, they work together both with Adam Sandler. So PTA with Punch Drunk Love and then Uncut Gems with them. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. I'm actually, I'm a big fan of Dramatic Sandler. I think that, uh, I don't know, I grew up on his films in like, you know, elementary school and high school. Uh, So I always liked the comedic side. And then as I grew up, I really grew to like his dramatic side. Uh, You know, specifically Punch Drunk Love and uh, Uncut Gems was amazing. But also he did... uh, Rain Over Me. Yeah, Rain Over Me. That was another um, good turn for him. So it's always cool when he can do something different. I mean, I'm always just a fan of comedic actors going in a more dramatic direction. So to see that happen uh, is, is pretty cool. In fact, I just saw a tweet the other day. It says, someone needs to give Ray Romano an Uncut Gems. And they're like, we need to get Ray Ray and Uncut Gems. And I was like, yeah, that'd be pretty great. I mean, he's, he, had, um, he's had some yeah, good he, turns in Scorsese. Uh, you know, he, he was in Vinyl and he was uh, in The Irishman, um, but never quite like a fully dark, you know, like an Uncut Gems type uh, type role. So it'd be cool to see that happen. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I um, yeah, it's not really, you know, that intense like Uncut Gems, but it was more of like a dramatic, you know, soft-spoken role. It was um, He was in, you know, The Big Sick. Oh, dad. yeah, yeah, that was he, good. Yeah, he did really good there, too, with Holly Hunt. Yeah, Hunter. Holly Hunter. Yeah. yeah. Did you see uh, Paddleton, the one with uh, Mark Duplass? Uh, no, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I, it's it's well worth checking out. I mean, not to spoil too much, but it's basically two friends. One of them gets cancer, and it's basically just about their journey as, as friends. And so uh, it's kind of in the vein of like a mumblecore type <laughs> film. I think it premiered at Sundance, and then it went out to uh, Netflix, uh, which was cool. One of the best parts about this like meta modern culture that we live in is the fact that release dates are sometimes shortening. Specifically with films that would debut at like indie film festivals like Sundance, you would sometimes get a film debuting, you know, in January of a year. And then sometimes it wouldn't be until the next year that you end up being able to see the thing because it debuts at other film festivals and it has to lock down distribution and go through all these chains. And then finally, you can get it on like video demand like a year later or something. And now with uh, Netflix and other streaming players in the game, there's a movie that will premiere at Sundance and then it'll get bought up and then the next week it's on a streaming service. Uh, so it's cool to be able to see that gap shorten uh, for you to be able to see independent films much more quickly. Correct. Yeah. I, uh, I can think of ex- some examples when I went to New York back in 2018 for the New York Film Festival. I saw a couple of movies that 
still. I think one still doesn't even have a Blu-ray release. Some just recently came out. Uh, so one of them is Ashes Pierced White. I'm not even going to try to attempt to do, to pronounce the director's name because I'm totally going to butcher it. But that movie, I watched it at the New York premiere there. Uh, really good. And it just recently came out like more than a year later on Blu-ray with Cohen Media Group. Mm-hmm. Um, another one would be um, Olivier Assayas, uh, his film nonfiction yeah so the english title is nonfiction that one came out in yeah 2018 summer of 2018 then it came out in january of 2019 in france and i'm not sure if that one even has a blu-ray yet so Mm. yeah it's definitely one of those things where if you can if you can go to a film festival and watch something like that because it might be a while before you see it again yeah, totally. Um, it's one of the best things about a film festival is you can kind of see it ahead of time and start talking about it and kind of get that buzz building. Um, the problem is that sometimes you don't get to see it again for a long time later. Uh, so it's kind of a trade off, but it's always great to be able to see a movie before it uh, gets big. Correct. Yeah. And then another one that I can think of would be, so Wildlife, the Paul Dano movie. Yeah. So I also saw that in or at the New York Film Festival. Great movie. I think it came out, uh, you could rent it, you know, through Amazon streaming, and it's just barely getting uh, a physical release in the next couple of weeks with Criterion, yeah. which is really cool because it's hard to, I mean, it's weird thinking about uh, an American movie being released in 2018, just now getting a Blu-ray, but thankfully it is finally getting a Blu-ray and it's great that Criterion's doing it, so they're giving it a good amount of special features, it looks like. I'm looking right now at the Blu-ray.com review, mm-hmm. so the video quality is really good. Uh, it's got a couple of special features. They actually gave it one of their highest scores. So, yeah, it's definitely going to be a worthwhile pickup because I'm sure if one person had, like if some other random company had distributed, like Sony Pictures Classics, something like that, it was going to have at most like 10 minutes of interviews and that was it. Oh, totally. I think Criterion, the people to, to be able to handle that properly. And, you know, that's the problem with studio releases is they're really just kind of let's get this thing out there and get some money in our wallets. Whereas Criterion really takes the time to be able to add the special features and even go so far as to create special features of their own. If they don't feel like there's enough, they'll conduct new interviews and do new video essays and things like that. Um, which I don't think you really see as much from the studios. And uh, definitely going to be looking forward to seeing Wildlife because even though it's in the collection, I have not uh, seen it yet. Um, But I'm a big fan of Paul Dano and uh, I'm meaning to check it out. But now that I know the Criterion is is coming, I'm like, yeah, might as well just wait until uh, until that one comes out and see it with the new scan. Correct, yeah. And, um, you know, speaking about the special features that they do, uh, so, for example, Wildlife, they have a 45-minute conversation between Paul Dano and the original author of the book that it's based off of, uh, Richard Ford. Mm. So that's going to be a pretty cool special feature for sure as well. So stuff like that, always nice to see uh, when when they do stuff like that because, yeah, it's better than not having nothing. Because you would think, like a lot of modern movies, uh, you would think it's easy to come across you know, certain things, but not necessarily. Like if nobody takes the time to film stuff. There's really no uh, nothing available to be able to watch or see. Yeah, and that's why I think documentation is so uh, critical during the the filmmaking process. Uh, you know, obviously, it would result in insane amount of footage if a camera is rolling every day. But you know, it's just nice to be able to document things here and there, uh, especially if the film does turn out to be you know kind of a game changer. Uh, better safe than sorry. Uh, just kind of recording stuff on set and just kind of seeing what the general vibe is. Yeah, for sure, especially. Uh... Since it's, I mean, it's even cheaper nowadays, you know, before it was, you know, expensive having to 
shoot film, you know, develop it and all that. But now you can easily shoot digital footage with some fairly decent digital camera and it costs hardly anything filling up a, you know, a memory card of, you know, a bunch of footage there. So it's a lot easier to document and they're, you know, really cheap cameras. I mean, you can shoot behind the scenes stuff with an iPhone now and it'll still be pretty decent quality in 4K. So, I mean, there's really not much of an, exp- of an excuse to not do it. I think just, people just don't really care that much anymore. Oh, totally. And I think the whole advent of iPhone filmmaking is just starting to take off. And I think it'll get even better as the years go on. I, I know that uh, you're also a fan of uh, Sean Baker's work and uh, Florida Project, great film. I don't know, William Defoe is just so solid in it. Um, but he made the film before that, Tangerine, uh, which is the one that he got famous for shooting uh, all on an iPhone. And it was one of uh, just a big surprise last year when he got up on stage with Apple and started talking about iPhone filmmaking and uh, this specifically with the iPhone 11 Pro, uh, being able to, to record video with Filmic Pro in basically mm-hmm. uh, four different cameras at once. So you can record the three on the back and then you get the, uh, the, thir- or the fourth one uh, on the front. You can technically record all of them at the same time with this one app, uh, which is pretty gnarly. Yeah, it's really... And then, uh, of course, there's Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, doing great stuff too. Also, you know, did... Unsane, yeah, and, and then high, high flying, flying bird, bird. For, yeah, Jinx. Which so that's another yeah so that's another one that uh, I mean it's very unlikely. So Unsane, even though it was filmed on an iPhone, that has a 4K release, and if you look at it, it actually looks pretty good. You know, for the quality for you know it being Blu-ray, most people would think, what's the point of owning uh, you know a Blu-ray or a 4K Blu-ray of something that was shot on an iPhone? But it actually looks pretty good, mm-hmm. and the movie itself is actually I think. In the future, I think it'll be looked back upon, kind of like Contagion is now, as uh, a really good project. Uh, but then there's also High Flying Bird, which is only on Netflix. I hope at some point they release a, you know, a Blu-ray version of it because there's a lot of cool shots on there yeah. that you can't really. So, I mean, I'm not sure if you can get them elsewhere, but since you can't really record straight off of Netflix, it's hard to use those as examples and videos because, you know, clips aren't on YouTube. You can only access it through Netflix. It'd be nice having a Blu-ray to be able to, you know, extract that information because uh, there's some really good stuff on there. And that was also shot on an iPhone. So hopefully totally. at one point they do have a Blu-ray. So that's why I'm excited that Irishman is getting a Blu-ray release through Criterion at some point this year or next. Yeah, that'll um, be really exciting. And Irishman and uh, gosh, there were there were several other uh, Marriage Story uh, uh, and a, a handful of other Netflix titles getting releases as well. I mean, obviously it started with Roma, which I thought was uh, really well done with Criterion. So it'll be cool to see the rest of uh, some of these films get, get a Criterion release. For sure, yeah. And then a lot of people... You know, getting mad about how uh, why they're wasting their time with a movie like that when you can just watch it for free on Netflix. But I mean, it's really they should be thankful they're getting a hard copy because if anything happens to the digital version, mm-hmm. uh, how else are you going to access it? So, yeah, I'm a big believer in being able to actually own the content that you like. I'm to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of this whole streaming model. Um, just Correct. based on the fact that if you stream something, you never actually get a chance to own it. So a streaming customer is a repeat customer, and you can never really break the chains. And uh, Steve Jobs talked a lot about it on stage when he introduced the uh, iTunes Music Store 
And he talked about just in the context of music, they're saying like, if you keep renting your favorite song month after month, it's like, why not just own it? So it's the same with uh, with movies, uh, specifically if there's a movie that you love, just be able to, to get it. And that way you don't have to worry about streaming this. So, uh, and especially with Netflix, these titles come and go. Um, they basically have licensing deals with the studios to be able to put the titles on Netflix. So that's why titles come and go constantly on Netflix, uh, because ultimately, oh, uh, this time Warner Brothers is pulling it. They're going to put it on their own, you know, uh, HBO Max. And then uh, Disney is pulling their movies from Netflix and putting them on Disney Plus. And it's just like it's difficult to be able to have something that's as cohesive as owning your own library. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, and then another thing was just that if there's only a digital file that you can access through streaming, they could like modify a scene or they could make changes and you have no other choice because the previous version doesn't exist on hard copy. Yeah. Uh, so you have no other choice but accept what they give you. Um, so that's another thing where there's a risk with streaming. I was actually thinking about it the other day as if there's like a post-apocalyptic world where all electronics are down or like streaming. And the only way that people can get movies is through people that actually have them, you know, hard copies. Mm -hmm. So like you see, you see movies being sold for like hundreds of dollars because you can only get them through hard copy. Yeah. People would, you know, freak out because if you can't stream it and they don't have it in person, they really have no other option. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because you obviously it would be catastrophic failure of the Internet if, if that were to go down. But at the end of the day, these studios could theoretically just pull and withdraw their movies from circulation. I know Disney is famous for that, pulling their movies into the Disney vault and, you know, not allowing uh, people to have access to it. So basically, these companies have the ability to artificially constrain the supply to increase the demand at any moment. And so that's why it's nice to be able to have uh, hard copies of things. So that way, you know, you don't have to worry about it going anywhere. Correct. Yeah. So that's why I'm glad whenever a Netflix uh, movie gets a Blu-ray. So I'll be definitely getting, you know, The Irishman. And I think there's another one. I think Atlantic's. That's the other one I haven't seen, but that's yeah. also getting a Criterion that was announced. And uh, Parasite, so that's not Netflix, but that's also getting a Criterion, so that's good. So I've held off on buying the normal Blu-ray. So that's so with Parasite, for example, uh, they're coming out with a 4K disc version. Uh, so it's not the Criterion, but it's a 4K. But then it's not the Criterion, so I'll obviously want to own the Criterion, but the Criterion, they don't do 4K. So it's like if I want to have a 4K copy, I need to buy the 4K Blu-ray, but then if I want to have the one with the special features... And then I got to get the <laughs> yeah. other one. Um, so probably what I'll end up doing is buy both, put the disc, the 4K disc into the Criterion box or whatever. So that way. There you go. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But yeah, I just wish that Criterion would have 4K releases. Um, but yeah, yeah it'll be interesting do? to see if they if they jump on ship with that, having the you know 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray discs. Um, because yeah. not everyone has, has gotten on board with those. Not all the uh, studios and uh, and release manufacturers are doing it. So uh, it'll be interesting yeah, to see if it catches on more. Yeah, I mean, I figured they would have switched by now if they were going to. Uh, I think I've seen before where they don't do it just because of the cost. But, mm -hmm. I mean, they're still selling DVDs, which I think if they were to stop selling DVDs, they could use that towards 4K. And if you're already going through the hassle of remastering a movie in 4K, it's kind of obvious why wouldn't you actually you know release it in 4k but yeah know, that's just me uh, i think i mean honestly with roma a lot of people were expecting it to be the first 4k uh criterion mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't and i think that if they had done that they still would have you know gotten their money so i mean a lot of people do want it they'll pay 
and yeah, we'll see. There's also, you know, the rumors that they're not doing so well financially, and that's why they're releasing so many recent popular movies like you know Irishman or Parasite to offset those costs. Mm-hmm. But I've we'll see. I've heard that too. But I also think that there's Criterion has always had a balance of artistic films and popular films, and I think that. One of my favorite aspects of of Criterion Collection is the fact that they are willing to kind of include both. Uh, You know, I think that, you know, there is a distinction between like a Criterion level film and say something that you might get on like Shout Factory or Kino Lorber or Arrow, other things. They all have kind of their distinctive flavor. Um, But Criterion definitely does have some more populist style films. You know, one of the most recent examples is uh, something like Breakfast Club. Uh, which mm-hmm. I still, you know, I am a big fan of the film. I think John Hughes is uh, a great uh, writer-director, but I think films like that, a lot of people have been snobbish towards, you know, oh, that doesn't belong in the collection, mm-hmm. or, you know, oh, this or that. Uh, you know, and looking at recent films like Parasite or The Irishman or even uh, Marriage Story, uh, I think it is, I'm I'm okay with them releasing something that's a little bit more, populist uh, in order to finance the uh, resurrection of other films and restoration Correct. Of, you know some yeah. of the ones that are really you know of artistic merit and I think you know with films some people have talked about certain films being like dessert and other films being like vegetables and sometimes you know you do have to eat your vegetables in and uh, you know go through a film that's a little bit more dry and boring uh, but then you also have your dessert type films and I think that with Criterion, they're kind of dipping their toes into more of some of those dessert-type films uh, in order to finance the vegetable-type films. Correct. And that's exactly why I always say uh, when you know people are getting mad in comments whenever they announce a movie is that if they want them to be able to fund some really obscure 70s Polish movie that's not going to sell that well, they have to have stuff that will sell a lot. So something like Breakfast Club, uh, you know, maybe, let's say... The Bruce Lee box that's coming out, uh, Godzilla, all those types of stuff that are you know really really popular, uh, they will help be able to fund stuff that's not that popular and won't sell that many copies. So stuff like you know Valerie and her Week of Wonders is one that I can think of. I mean I doubt they sell that many copies of that one, so they need to be making their money elsewhere. So yeah, definitely that balance is needed, and people should just be you know excited for what they get because they could very easily not be getting anything. So. Well, what'd you think about the uh, Godzilla box set uh, as Spine 1000? Uh, I mean, I've only actually, for Godzilla, I've only actually seen the original one. So the very first Blu-ray that they had for the first one. And then I've seen the modern ones, but I haven't seen like any of the other stuff. And I mean, I definitely do want to own that box set at some point. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, for Spine 1000, I'm not sure what else. I mean, what I wanted to do, honestly, what I was hoping that they'd do for 1000 would be to have like a, a documentary about Criterion themselves. That would like be pretty deep, cool. Yeah, pretty meta. For, yeah, for like a deep dive, like two hour thing, because you don't really see much behind the scenes on their end. You know, they'll post a couple of photos of their office. You'll see like maybe one 10 minute special uh, that came out a couple of years ago when they were talking about foreign correspondent mm-hmm. and how the restoration was for that. But you don't really see much else. You don't really see how their process works. I was lucky enough to see one of their talks, I'm not sure if they do them anymore, in Ohio at the Wexner Center, uh, where they'll have two people from Criterion Collection and they'll give a talk about, you know, their process, kind of like give restoration demos. They talk about how, you know, each release 
has its own producer, and that producer will be in charge of, you know, doing the interviews, finding the materials, pretty much their, it's their project, and they come out with their Blu-ray, and then they move on to something else. So most people don't know that. Um, they just think it's a company that gets a movie, puts it on Blu-ray. They don't know, like, the actual process behind it, and so it's cool learning about that. And it would have been cool if they went into details like that. That would have been a cool 1,000. So that way you're not really saying, you know, Godzilla or if it had been a Kira Kurosawa box set or whoever. Yeah. Uh, just about Criterion themselves. That would have been cool. That's what I always thought they would do for 1,000. Yeah, it's such a cool idea yeah. because I think that specifically what they're doing for film in general it has been talked about a lot by just all of these different directors and writers and actors and people who care about preserving cinema. So it'd be really cool to have some sort of a, a retrospective documentary uh, from some of the directors who are still alive and have their films in the collection or are talking about the collection. You know, it would be a, a really cool idea. So I'm surprised that there's not a documentary like that out there. Uh, maybe there's one in the works or maybe that's your next project <laughs> there. Who knows? Correct, yeah, and because uh, like, the other thing, interesting thing about them is that it's such a small group, and they've all been working together for, like, it's pretty much impossible to get hired there, because everybody there has been there for, like, 10 to 20 years. It's oh, like, yeah. You know, it's hitting the same group of people, but yeah, that's another cool thing where it'd be cool to, you know, hear from them, see how things have evolved since the beginning, <laughs> up until, you know, now, because, so, you know, when they first started, there was no such thing as streaming, it was just, you know, DVD, or, when you know, when they first started, it was laser discs. Yeah, um, but you know now they have like the Criterion Channel and stuff like that. So yeah, would have been cool. And hopefully, I mean, at some point they do do something like that where they can kind of shed some more light into themselves, so that way they're not that much of a mystery. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, at some point somebody does it. I mean, I'm like you said, I'm surprised nobody else has done it. Even if they didn't want to do it themselves, I mean, they have such connections with people that have done documentaries and other filmmakers that I'm surprised nobody else has wanted to shed some light on them. So yeah, I mean, that definitely seems like a kind of low hanging fruit for film fans, uh, to make a documentary about the criterion collection. Uh, so maybe, maybe that's forthcoming. Yeah. We'll, uh, definitely have to wait and see. And that, yeah, that'll be definitely something that I can, that I would purchase and watch on the big screen if possible. Uh, but yeah, we'll have to see how things progress. I'm sure right now they're trying to cut as much cost down with, um, all that's going on. Because I'm pretty sure they were they had that post recently where when all this was coming out where they were all working remotely now, yeah. so they can't really do much in terms of you know flying out to do interviews with people, especially if they're you know older directors or older actors. They don't want to you know risk them getting sick and stuff, so they're not going to be able to do those in person interviews. Which that's another thing. So uh, that they talked about is if they have to go get you know an original film print from let's say a uh, Almodovar movie, so they have to go to Spain and that's where they do everything in the actual home country. And if they're going to, you know, interview people, most likely they're going to be in Spain. So they're not going to be, you know, doing those trips nowadays. So it'll be interesting to see um, how things in the long run are affected or if they'll cancel certain special features or if they just won't have, I don't know. My hope is that they wouldn't like, if they were going to plan, you know, an interview with somebody, hopefully they'll just hold off on releasing that movie until they can get the full supplements package that they wanted. So that way it's not just, you know, rushed out. Um, but yeah, yeah, and I, I worry about kind of the ripple effect because I think there's been enough media that's been created uh, that's so starting to trickle out. But there's basically, it's similar to the writer's strike in 2007, 
uh, where there were new episodes still coming out. And then all of a sudden you felt this, uh, there was this valley uh, where there was like no new media for a little while because of the delayed effect of uh, the writer strike. So I think with COVID-19, we're going to feel the same sort of thing. Uh, where months from now, we're basically going to have, you know, not as many uh, films and TV shows coming out because there was production halted right now. So it'll be interesting to see how that'll affect places like Criterion and Arrow and other things like that, if they will continue at the same pace or if there's going to be a bit of a delay there. Yeah, so yeah, pretty much all of this is just a waiting game at this point. Um, did you see that they just announced like a bit ago the Agnes Varda monster box set yeah i just saw that this morning yeah. actually yeah big uh, big one coming in august yeah 39 movies yeah it's gonna be insane yeah i mean they've recently been doing a lot of these big big box sets and i think it's just so cool to be able to have something so comprehensive especially in such high quality uh you know especially with some of these directors that prior to this it, you know oh it's a foreign dvd i can get and you know oh i've got to buy this from europe or wherever um, but now you can actually get something that's all together and in such high quality, too. So it'll be uh, pretty cool. And I, I personally haven't seen much of her work, uh, so I'm looking forward to diving into more of it. Yes. Yeah, same here. I haven't seen that much. So this will be a good option to finally get through all that. But, yeah, I'm so behind on other box sets. I mean, I still need to get their huge Olympics box set from a couple of years ago. Oh, I'm a yeah. Huge Olympics nerd and like Olympics history and all that. So that's pretty much like the perfect set for me. And I still need to get that. Then there's still the Bergman set, the Godzilla set. Now this one's coming out. It's yeah. impossible impossible to uh, keep up. It's it's wild. And and the I've slowly been adding all of the, the films that have come out from these box sets. And I'm pretty sure I've got all of the uh, Olympic films in the collection now. And the Godzilla films. And even uh, the Zatoichi box set. And... Uh, um, I think it's uh, the Cub and Dog uh, one oh, as well. That, the, uh, yeah, cub yeah, and Wolf. Wolf and cub. Yeah, Lone Wolf and Cub. That's what it was. Uh, yeah, so I've added all of those in there, but I haven't had a chance to watch all of them. Uh, so it's like getting them is one thing, but then actually having the time to sit there and comb through them all is just mm -hmm. crazy. But um, speaking of video, some of those uh, Olympic films were shot on video, and so I think they did a pretty good job of restoring some of those, uh, you know, even though there is some limited quality to them, uh, it definitely is pretty much the best that they could get uh, working with what they had, um, but uh, still well worth your time. Yeah, it's always funny um, seeing for this situation where there's, you know, the early 40s or 50s, you know, obviously shot on film. And that stuff restored looks better than video stuff shot in the early 90s or late 80s. Yeah, it's so, kind of yeah. ironic how that works out. Yeah, so I mean, definitely at the time they were doing that because it's you know cheaper and quicker. But in the long run, when you're talking about restoration, definitely the film will always look way better. So it's kind of like how I recently started, you know, shooting 35 millimeter photography, where if you you know take a really nice quality photo, it can be from any year. Like it could be from the '60s or it could be from now. You can't really tell. Yeah. Compared to if you shot a, a photo using an early 2000s digital camera, you can definitely tell that that'd be outdated. Yeah, and I think there's a distinction between. So obviously, there's there's high-fi, high fidelity, and low-fi, low fidelity. Um, but then there's also digital low-fi and analog low-fi. 
And I think it's important to distinguish between the two because analog lo-fi is what you'd get with like a, a Polaroid photo where there's a certain fuzziness and a warmth to the photo. But then mm-hmm. digital lo-fi just looks bad. I mean, digital lo-fi is just where you have a lot of blocks and what they call compression artifacts. Yeah, where yeah. you start to get just really weird like digitalization, crunchy, and it just doesn't look good. But analog lo-fi can definitely bring on a certain warmth and even a sense of nostalgia uh, when you look at some of the ways the the lenses will work in certain analog cameras and things like that. You can kind of bring a haze around the image that isn't exactly uh, easily reproducible uh, digitally there. So that's why it's cool to be able to work, uh, you know, in both mediums there, depending on what the project calls for. Correct, yeah. That's why one thing, like you mentioned before, we're hopefully just film even though it's not going to be as prevalent as it is before it should just never go away completely yeah i mean it's it's like any artist you know they've got clay they've got paint they've got uh, watercolors you know all these different things and i think you know film and digital are kind of that same sort of uh thing it's just basically something you can draw from and use to tell your story um, so hopefully, as we kind of progress through this, it'll be interesting to see what other innovations uh, come up. I know people have talked about VR cinema and kind of being able to shoot in 360. So it'll be interesting to see if that sort of stuff takes off or if uh, it'll just be kind of relegated to just a novelty uh, of filmmaking. Yeah, so it's actually a, it's interesting you bring up about VR. So another movie that I got to watch at the film festival is uh, Long Day's Journey Into Night by Be Gone or I'm not sure if I'm saying the name right correctly, but yeah, so he, it's only his second feature, his first one being uh, Kylie Blues. So he's a someone who has that famous shot in Long Day's Journey Tonight where the last, I believe it's like 40 to 50 minutes is one take. It's like a, th- it's a 3D one take shot. It's really cool. It kind of like goes from like aerial view to like through neighborhood streets and it's really cool. And I got to see it in 3D because it was at that film festival. So oh, wow. it's not available, home release in 3D. Uh, just because they're not going to spend money on such a non-popular film to be giving a 3D Blu-ray release, and most people don't have 3D setups at home. Yeah, but he was a- he was actually asked in the Q and A if because of you know that technology and the 3D thing, he would be interested in doing VR stuff. And he said that he was approached uh, when making this project to do VR stuff for you know different countries in China because he's a Chinese director, and he said that he wasn't really interested in that because he likes the traditional setup where you choose the exact frame and the cutting. And with VR and stuff, you don't get that. Yeah. Uh, you can, you know, look around. You don't really have total control of the composition. So that was another interesting thing that I had never thought of at that point. But Totally. That's um, actually yeah. one of the consistent things I've heard about directors talking about the potential of VR cinema, specifically that as a filmmaker, you want to direct the viewer's eyes and where they're going to look and what they're going to see. And when you have something shot in VR... You basically have nowhere to hide. There's just 360 degrees. So it's going to be difficult to really direct the viewer's eyes to what you want the scene to contain. And so if there's a full 360 and there's actually action happening all around you, it would be too overwhelming. You couldn't necessarily view it all at once. You'd have to watch it from different angles multiple times. And maybe somebody wants to do something creative with that. Uh, you know, I think of almost like the choose your own adventure type stuff that Netflix has been playing around with. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if building your own digital narrative, if that will kind of take off, because I know that was the original intention season four of Arrested Development. 
Um, they had wanted to be able to kind of have all of these different stories branch off from one another. And you could digitally go through and say, oh, let's see, uh, Michael's talking to Job here. And uh, you could go through and, and then click on his episode and then go through his, and then you can weave your own narrative through the story. So I, I have no idea what kind of stuff uh, will come out from this, but it'll be interesting to see. Correct, yeah. That's, that's actually another good example, the Arrested Development Season 4 experiment, which I think in the long run, I do remember them saying that they regretted doing it that way. But yeah, it's one of those things where you just kind of have to experiment to see how it plays out, and then you won't know until you actually try it. Yeah. And I mean, with the rest of development season four, the original intention of kind of doing the choose your own adventure fell through pretty quickly because they realized what a logistical nightmare it was going to be having to, uh, you know, weave the stories like that. Um, but having such a stacked cast, they had a lot of difficulty aligning the shooting schedules. So that's why they kind of had to do it in such a way for season four. But I don't know if you got a chance to view uh, the reconstructed version that hit Netflix a little later, where they basically cut it up into more of a narrative, uh, or at least a chronological structure. Uh, did you get a chance to kind of compare the two? Uh, no, I actually haven't seen that yet. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. The only knock I have against it is just that because the original fourth season was structured in such a way that the story was kind of centered around each episode. When they broke it up, they had to do so much narrating to get it to where things made sense that you would sometimes spend as much as seven to nine minutes per episode of just catching up on the narrative of the narrator kind of going through different things. So, I mean, Ron Howard did a great job with it, but it was just so much exposition that was required for each episode mm -hmm. to flow properly uh, that it kind of... I almost preferred the original season four to the, the reconstructed version, but the reconstructed version does flow a little bit better, but it's just interesting to compare the two. Yeah, I'll definitely, uh, out of curiosity, one of these days I'll check it just to see how it works out. But yeah, definitely another one, you know, speaking of reconstructions or stuff like that, uh, is the uh, Quentin Tarantino, so Hateful Eight, how that was, you know, divided into like four chapters or four episodes yeah one movie. have That's you have you seen the breakdown of that comparing the two um i haven't seen the breakdown so that one i've only seen once in theaters when it came out but i definitely do want to revisit it and i think just out of curiosity i'll revisit it this way just to see if i notice any differences or if it works out better that way you know it's funny because i've seen almost every tarantino film but i still have yet to see hateful eight and I just got the extended four-episode version. It's basically four hour-long episodes uh, that Netflix kind of got a hold of. So I'm actually going to be – I think I'm going to sit down and watch that version uh, compared to the theatrical version uh, as my first viewing just to see how it uh, stacks up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm not sure – yeah, because I don't – I know it exists. I just never looked too much into it because uh, I know – you know how he did that road sit, the road show version, yeah, seventy millimeters. So it was longer. I never got to see that. So um, I just saw the regular theater cut. So yeah, it'll be interesting just to see how that works out. Yeah, definitely. I uh, I think it'll be interesting too if he ends up doing one more movie because he basically has been talking about the fact that he's pretty much got one more movie left in him. Uh, it looks like it's not going to be a Star Trek film. Uh, so who knows what that'll be. And uh, and what that last film is going to shape up to be? Yeah, it'll be uh, interesting. So I, I mean, I just recently learned that he actually lives in Israel now. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, so I was kind of joking the other day about how he'll do the ten movies, 
take a, an extended break, come back under like a different name and direct movies under that. Yeah. Um, so that way he can say that, you know, Tarantino only made 10 movies, but this new persona that creates uh, kind of like a Cat Stevens, Yusuf Islam type yeah. thing. He'll, he'll come back in 20 years and he'll be like, he'll just physically look entirely different. And he'll just be like a completely new person and he'll still be making stuff. Cause I can't imagine, uh, his experience living in a totally different country after all he's known as like LA and Hollywood, that that'll definitely influence some new work for sure in the future. Yeah. I would actually be interested in seeing that and maybe even something set in the middle East, you know, he's never done anything like that. That could be kind of an interesting backdrop for one of his films. So yeah, who knows what that's going to look like. But uh, speaking of Tarantino, he was one of the influences for building the collection, specifically because he was he got a lot of inspiration from his, his job being a film clerk at uh, the video store there. And he often would talk about the influence that watching films had on him creating films. And he has the famous quote where he said, uh, I didn't go to film school, I went to films. And, uh, and I think that that's so powerful when you think about opening up access of films to people to inspire them to make the next generation of films. And that's one of the fundamental reasons why I got into curating the collection is specifically to get all of those films in one roof. Uh, so that way, if somebody's interested in learning about film or watching films, they don't have to go to all of these different services and hunt down something on DVD and import it from the UK or whatever. You can just go to one place and learn about films and be inspired by all of the films that have come out before you. Yeah, correct. Exactly. So yeah, it's definitely uh, good that you're, you've been working on this project for the past several years now. So it'll definitely be helpful getting these movies out to you know a bigger audience that wouldn't have had access to that before. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, where things go from here, but I'm just having fun with it and just kind of enjoying the curation aspect um, because I definitely will uncover films that challenge my boundaries as well. That's one of the reasons why I enjoy doing it so much is because I'll get recommendations from people or I will stumble upon films that I didn't even know existed and uh, they definitely seem like something worth checking out. Yeah, for sure, yeah. And I mean, I uh, had known, uh, so before Criterion... Before I discovered that, I didn't really know much about a lot of international cinema. Like, I knew about, you know, old movies. I was familiar with, like, you know, Charlie Chaplin and stuff like that due to that video class that I took in high school. But, yeah, in terms of stuff like Akira Kurosawa and stuff like that, no clue who they were or what they were about until I started digging into Criterion. So that was, like, opening up a brand new world for me. So, you know, obviously still I'm always discovering new stuff. But it's not the same as like that first initial discovery where it's like a whole new world. Same with, you know, seeing an old movie the way you're used to seeing old movies before and now how they are with the Blu-rays of Criterion nowadays and other distributors uh, definitely was also mind blowing and life changing in a way to see what old movies could look like. Because before that, you just kind of see those old washed out versions on TV or old VHSs. And with this, you can actually see that the quality of film is much higher than that. Yeah, I definitely would uh, tend to agree. I think that just the quality of the film itself almost makes me more passionate about it because, you know, obviously film fans have been around for a while. But I mean, I can't imagine growing up in Quentin Tarantino's age where he had a bunch of films, but they were all VHS. I mean, he actually is very vocal about his love of VHS, even to this day. And uh, sometimes we'll prefer to watch things on VHS over Blu-ray uh, as it's the aesthetic of the VHS. But VHS definitely has a lot of drawbacks and specifically the, the old pan and scan, you know, taking something that's widescreen 
and uh, and making it full screen there. So it's nice to be able to not only have the full picture, but also to be able to have it in just such a high resolution where you don't see the lines on the TV. Um, one of my favorite aspects of HD video is being able to watch a film that shows a CRT TV on mm. the film and you see it in HD and it's like, cause if you watched it on DVD on your CRT TV, the CRT TV in the film doesn't look bad. It's just, it looks like a TV. But when you watch that old TV on a new TV with HD, you can see all of the scan lines and like how distorted the picture looked but that's how we saw TV for the longest time. So it's so cool to be able to see that in HD and you kind of can do a quick comparison while you're watching any of these old movies. Correct. Yeah, actually, uh, I never really thought about that. And I'm sure I'll probably start noticing it more. But yeah, that's 100% true. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. But that's why it's so great to be a film fan in this era. Um, not only were films way more accessible, but the quality of the film is just second to none. So it's pretty cool to be able to dive in and, and find stuff that you wouldn't have found otherwise. Correct. Yeah. And I actually, uh, so when I was in that one year in Rochester and I took French, so I took French for two semesters. So the full year, our teacher showed us a uh, band apart, the Godard film. Yeah. And I had never, you know, knew anything about Godard or anything like that. But she just kind of played us a scene just so we can hear, you know, French and for whatever exercise we were doing. And that got me interested into looking into more, you know, international old films. And I mean, she played us like an old, uh, you know, DVD version. I'm not sure if it was Criterion. Maybe it wasn't. I wasn't paying attention to that sort of stuff back then. Mm -hmm. But yeah, nowadays you'd be able to do that. And, you know, on an HD Blu-ray and it look even better because, you know, that movie's on the Criterion collection and it has a, a really nice release for it. So yeah, it definitely helps out as well in the academic world too, where you're trying to, you know, show stuff for lectures. It makes it easier to have stuff um, that you wouldn't have had before where you had, or it was in really poor quality. And now you can actually showcase it in a much better way for, you know, lectures or classes and stuff like that. Oh, totally. That's actually another reason why I'm doing what I'm doing specifically because when I studied film in college, uh, we had uh, our professor use DVDs and we had a nice projector, but it was all just DVD stuff. And what would be so great is to be able to have HD versions of the films and not have to be tied to a disc. So that way you could have uh, basically a hard drive or a server of some kind tied up to the school's network. So that way you could just click through the film that you want to click through and you start playing instantly. No need to wait for a disc to, to load up or menus to go by or this or that. And this also allows for people making super cuts of things. If you're teaching film and you want to teach a director's uh, flair, you know, a certain signature move they have, you can go through their entire filmography using the collection and be able to cut up different clips here and there and actually make it into a cohesive video essay and actually teach from the clips in a lecture format. And that's just not something that's currently available with the, the media landscape. So I'm just trying to pave a way for, for educators to be able to teach using film in a way that's not currently available. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, that's also good. So, yeah, pretty much what you're doing right now with your work, definitely going to help out uh, in a lot of scenarios. Yeah, it'll be uh, pretty cool. I'm just kind of looking through things right now. Did you get a chance to see Grand Budapest Hotel just dropped? Uh, so that's I actually I never got the original Blu-ray uh, when it first came out, you know, f a few years ago, mm -hmm. just because I knew Criterion uh, will eventually release it. So I don't have a Blu-ray copy of it yet. I'll definitely get the Criterion version uh, during a, a future sale. Um, 
Yeah, I pretty much get all my stuff whenever there's a sale. That's the best way to go. I mean, really, (laughs) it's, I mean, honestly, the films themselves are pretty expensive. Uh, It looks like, actually, I just checked and they're currently sold out of Grand Budapest Hotel in the Blu-ray. Um, oh really? So yeah, they're really uh, going for it. But I I just added it to the collection this morning, the the uh, Criterion version, and it's such a strange film to digitalize, just based on the fact that there are three different aspect ratios. Mm, um, yeah. And it, it gets into nerdy territory. But once you actually have a package for video, you need to give it certain attributes, like whether or not it has anamorphic widescreen. Or, or how you're going to crop the video. So having three different aspect ratios means the container of the video has to really be bigger than what majority of the time it needs to be. So you kind of have to, to use some special techniques to be able to kind of get it in the right package. Um, but it's, a, it's such an interesting movie using the aspect ratios to be able to kind of frame the story times as well. Correct, yeah. That's actually, I had never really paid much attention before then because that movie was coming out r- roughly around the same time that I was you know, getting into Criterion and learning more about stuff like that. So the whole decision to have three different aspect ratios for the three different time periods, uh, that's when it you know, first became really noticeable. Uh, that's, you know, it's becoming more prevalent now, because you know how a lot of people are starting to use the Academy ratio, the, yeah. like the, the 133, um, and that's becoming more popular. And I think before Grand Budapest, I can't really think of many modern movies that used it. And now it's becoming, you know, more prevalent. You'll see it in, you know, David Lowry, Ghost Story. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you see you know, uh, First Reformed, uh, Paul Schrader's film? Uh, I have not seen that one yet. Yeah, that was a really, really well done and also shot in uh, the Academy ratio there, a full screen image. Oh, yeah, I didn't know about that one. Uh, I know that there's also uh, well, Lighthouse is actually even narrower than the Academy one. That one's even, I forget what the exact number is, but that one's actually even narrower than that. So there's that. Um, The Witch, of course, also by Eggers. So, yeah, there's a lot of directors starting to use that Academy ratio nowadays that it wasn't that common before. What do you think of the uh, Quibi ratio? Uh, (laughs) Not actually too familiar with what Quibi. I think Quibi's like another one of the it's streaming it was it was mainly a joke but yeah the quibi is so jeffrey katzenberg funded this new streaming platform that's just tanking right now Um, but essentially they are catering towards uh smartphone users who want short bits so quibi quick bites and basically they are taking content and cropping it to fit basically on your phone in the portrait mode so you're watching stuff vertically and it's just everyone's criticizing it because apparently <laughs> the stuff is shot in a widescreen, you know, traditional mode, but then it's just mm-hmm. cropped to fit on your smartphone like that. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a mess right now. So it, there's a bunch of uh, content that's coming out. Um, they've got uh, one called The Most Dangerous Game with uh Christoph Waltz, it's supposed to be really good, but it's on Quibi. So the problem is is that it's not available on your desktop or Apple TV, and you can't even stream it to a TV. It's stuck on your phone. So there's a lot of criticism out there around this this new streaming platform, Um, but it'll be interesting to see uh, what actually gets uh, put out on this thing. Yeah, that's... uh, I don't know why they would have thought that that's a good idea, and especially to have original programming that way, so Essentially, it's just like shooting a, a video from your phone on vertical. Yeah, like, exactly. Like watching, I mean, watch, watching an Instagram story. Yeah, totally. Uh, and the, that's the worst part is they're cropping stuff out. So it's like 
you know that it looks, yeah, you get the big picture on your phone when you're holding it vertically, uh, but you're missing parts of the image. So you're not getting the full, full thing. So it seems pretty silly to me, but that's uh, kind of where we're at. And, and they launched it right as the uh, COVID-19 crisis was hitting and everyone's at home. And the thing about being at home is that you don't necessarily need to consume things in short bites uh, like you would if you're on the go or you know commuting to and from work. And the other thing is that when you're watching stuff on your phone, it's not very communal. Uh, you know, if, you're wa- if you want to watch something with friends or family, you can't stream it to your TV and do that. You're stuck just watching it on your phone as like a solitary thing. So it's all sorts of strange right now. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely have to look into it because uh, yeah, it definitely seems like a bizarre experiment that would not really work out in the long run. Yeah, totally. Uh, but I think that's, I mean, there's so many streaming services that are just popping up. I mentioned before, you've got uh, the HBO Max that's going to be coming out. And then um, there was even another one I just saw. Oh, yeah, NBC Universal's Peacock. That's the other one. Uh, so there's, I mean, it's just going to be an onslaught of all of these new streaming services. And what we're going to continue to see is just the fragmentation of the media landscape um, because you're basically going to have, okay, if you want Disney content, you have to go to Disney. You don't get Netflix anymore. Uh, you know, and if you want Warner Brothers content, you got to go to uh, HBO Max. And if you want uh, NBC Universal content, you got to go to Peacock. And, you know, somebody once said that the whole appeal of the Netflix model is broken when there are too many Netflixes. Uh, so, you know, it was nice having Netflix originally where it was everything all in one. You had this convergence of all of these different, uh, you know, Fox and ABC and NBC and Universal and all these different studios get on board. And now they're all just basically breaking apart and going to their own thing, uh, which means the fragmentation is going to continue to get worse. And it's just not a great idea for consumers because then it's basically like digital cable. You're just paying, Correct, yeah. you're paying, you know, in all these bundles exact- again, you know, so it's just not great. Correct. Yeah. You add them all up and it ends up just being the same as what you had before. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why it's going to be interesting to see how many of these streaming services stick around. Uh, you know, we've already had some come and go. Uh, one in recent memory. Uh, you ever hear of CISO? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that yeah, one. Yeah, it was uh, NBC's uh, launch at doing a comedy platform. They financed some different comedy shows and things like that, and it folded within like two years. Uh, just didn't get the traction that they were hoping. So there's stuff that will kind of be a casualty of all of this. So who knows if um, if some of the content will continue to get made. Just based on the fact that there are so many services out there, uh, nothing ever seems truly dead. Uh, so there's always stuff that kind of gets revived here and there from a different service. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. I'm sure, I mean, Netflix pretty much guaranteed that will always be around because uh, that's the original one. Disney, it's hard to see them going down. But yeah, HBO and then same with HBO. I mean, that's been around for a long time. I'm not sure about the NBC one. We'll have to see, but you know, yeah. yeah. Right now, I just have, you know, Disney, Amazon Prime, Netflix. Uh, that's Those are pretty much my go-tos. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's Hulu. Hulu's been around for a long time, so I'm not sure if they'd ever go down, but we'll see. I mean, see. Hulu, Hulu was great when, I mean, they used to have the entire Criterion Collection streaming, or at least as much as they could. Um, and that was really cool. Um, back when I used to get free Hulu in college, because you could go through there and find a bunch of great Criterion films. But uh, Disney has a stake in Hulu. Uh, Disney owns, I want to say, like 40% of Hulu or something crazy like that. And so they're basically going to be using Hulu 
as a repository for content that doesn't fit on Disney Plus. So Disney Plus, they want to have like a very family friendly vibe and anything that is not that way, uh, they're going to keep on Hulu. Um, so specifically all the Fox stuff that they just bought, as well as um, they own uh, Touchstone and uh, and stuff like that. So any of those Touchstone films are probably going to get put out on that as well. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how things kind of split up there in terms of the movies they have available on each. Correct, yeah, because uh, if you can get uh, Hulu, ESPN, and Disney Plus for like 13 bucks, it's like a bundle or something that they offer. Yeah, they're all owned by the mouse, so you know it makes sense that they want that synergy there. Correct, yeah, and I think uh, what you mentioned with Hulu and how things that aren't going to go onto the one channel are going to go be put onto Hulu... Uh, one thing that that reminds me of is the recent drama surrounding the the Lizzie McGuire reboot series. How you know they were ready to go and they were ready to film it, but then they had like disagreements about like the content or something. Yeah. So they decided to hold off, and then some people were just saying, "Well, why don't you just put it on Hulu instead or something like that?" But yeah, it'll be yeah. interesting to see how that goes because I know that Hilary Duff and some of the other creators were talking about the fact that they wanted it to be a realistic depiction of life in the '30s in your '30s. Um, but it's tough to do that if you're, you know, trying to go for a, a teen audience. So it'll be interesting to see how they actually go about that. Um, because I do think that as people have grown up with the show, I think that maybe they are looking for a more mature take on that character. So, you know, who knows if Disney's going to cave or if they're going to do what they do, uh, which is just kind of tone things down and, uh, and kind of clean things up a little bit. So I would like to see them offer that sort of stuff. I mean, they they have done, quote unquote, gritty reboots of things in the past. You know, you look at uh, something like Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, they weren't afraid to go PG-13 on that. It'll be interesting to see if they uh, do the same with something like Lizzie McGuire. Correct, yeah, and then same with, uh, so there's like the Star Wars series that are coming out, so you know, Mandalorian was recent, but then there's also the Obi-Wan series that also got postponed a bit, because they're also reworking those stories, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, what we get in the long run, to see if they tone it down a lot, or if they just continue with however they were going to do it originally, but same with the, uh, so they're going to have like that Marvel series, with the Winter Soldier and uh, Falcon, so we'll see how that goes. That'll be, I think, that's pretty much their second biggest original content after Mandalorian. So mm-hmm. we'll see how that goes and see how they and see if they retain the same kind of PG thirteen nature that the movies do, or uh, or how they play it. Yeah, totally. I think it'll be interesting to see how Marvel as a brand continues to go. Uh, we talked before about kind of Disney's financial struggles. So, you know, it seems like Marvel and Star Wars are two of their most profitable franchises. So who knows what the future is going to look like for that? I think that they're probably going to want to kind of double down on those and make sure that they can keep those cash cows going. But they also need to make sure that uh, the quality is there, too. Speaking of which, and because you're kind of at this this juxtaposition between art cinema and you also love superhero films and some of the more uh, popcorn films, I did want to hear your take on Scorsese versus Marvel. Uh, what do you think of his comments and uh, what side of the coin do you fall into? Yeah, so like you mentioned, I enjoy both kinds. So I'll either, I mean, I can get really into some really obscure art house stuff and then also at the same time really enjoy my Captain America, Iron Man stuff as well. So, I mean, his comments... I mean, obviously, the most important thing is he's open to, you know, say his opinion. And if that's how he feels, uh, nothing wrong with that. Can't judge too much, 
too much. I have more of a problem with people taking one person's comments and making it as if like that's the final. Yeah, you know, I saw some a lot of really snobby stuff about. Oh yeah, well Scorsese's right. You know, Scorsese knows more, so he's you know the final say in the matter. So because he says it, it's true. But I mean, you can like both. I mean, it's true. Obviously, watching something like let's say Endgame, for example, you're not going to learn about a different culture. It's, you know, in English, you're not being exposed to different languages. The drama and action is not going to be, is more focused on like a plot instead of characters necessarily. I'm not sure if I'm explaining it right, but yes, I mean, there's a lot of valid things about his comments about it not being, you know, the same, but it still doesn't mean it's any lesser, if that makes sense. As a movie fan, you should be open to seeing anything i mean if you just don't like something you don't like it nobody's forcing you to but you shouldn't also close yourself off completely because you might also be looking at you might be missing out on stuff so same with somebody who says you know i don't like superhero stuff there might be one that you would have really liked if you had watched it because i mean i'm not saying all of them are really good but there are some that are really good and then same with somebody that says i don't like watching movies that are in black and white or old because they're boring you might be missing out on a lot of stuff that is really good on that side as well so it's kind of better to be open so that way you can like both kinds of things and be exposed to different things and not shutting off an entire library. But that's pretty much how I would break it down. Yeah, no, that's that's a really solid take on it. And I did want to clarify, too, because obviously you and I know what Scorsese said about Marvel, but uh, maybe our listeners don't. Specifically, he talked about the fact that he wasn't too fond of Marvel movies. And then when asked further, Scorsese then clarified that he does not consider them to be cinema. And uh, that set off a big uh, firestorm within the Marvel community. Uh, a lot of people got upset based on the fact that he basically invalidated their quote-unquote art form. Um, but I think it's important mm -hmm. to draw the distinction between what he said and what he didn't say. Um, you know, I think he didn't, he didn't go around calling these movies crap or saying that they're not worth anything. Uh, he just said that they're not cinema. And I think it highlights kind of a divide within the film-going community that has existed for a while, um, this differentiation between a movie and a film. You know, obviously it sounds like nitpicking to most, but I do think that there is somewhat of a divide between a movie and a film, or some people call cinema. And I think that that divide has been around for a while. Some directors have talked about it. David Fincher uh, has said some really good things about it. Specifically, I, we talked before about that film Side by Side. In that movie, he talks about the distinction between film and uh, movie, and specifically movies as a whole are usually made by studios and they are there to generate revenue and they follow a certain formula and films usually try to buck that trend and try to do something a little bit more experimental, something that is sometimes a bit more grounded in reality uh, versus something that has a lot of CGI involved and things like that. And I think that what Scorsese was really talking about was the fact that these films aren't lacking artistic merit but they aren't on the same level as, say, like a Terrence Malick film or something that may be in the Criterion Collection. And I don't think there's anything wrong with liking both, because I think that in this metamodern age, we have this blurring of the line between high art and low art. And you have really great art house cinema being made. Um, but you also have some really interesting directors doing stuff with Marvel films as well. Even though I personally don't, or at least haven't seen too many Marvel films, I kind of get both sides of the equation. I do think that there is a bit of formulaic nature to a Marvel movie, but you know, in the long run, usually the good guys are going to win and the bad guys are going to lose. And there is a 
bit of a plot in between there, but there's not as much introspection or learning about yourself or other cultures or languages, as you mentioned. Um, but at the same time, it's fun to be able to have movies where you don't have to think too hard and to be able to, you know, sit there. And like we talked about before, vegetables and dessert type movies. Uh, I definitely think Marvel movies fall into that category of being more dessert type movies uh, versus something like a, uh, you know, a Brisson film or something like that. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Valid points. Um and then, like I said, and then one other thing to consider is that he, I mean, he even admitted that he really hasn't seen, or that he's, he's seen one and that he was done or something like that, which I'm not sure what movie he saw or at one point, but I mean, there's such a wide variety of them that, I mean, some are bound to be great, some are not so good. So, I mean, I'll admit that I'm not a huge fan of every single one. I mean, mm-hmm. there are some that are, you know, way, way better than others, you know, stuff like guardians of the galaxy let's say for example that one is you know completely written and directed by james gunn that's that's his 100 percent vision then you see other stuff that's written by different people directed by somebody else and you can tell that that's more of a kind of like a directed by a group type thing mm-hmm. but then there are stuff where it's you know written and directed by a singular person and it, it is definitely his stuff and you can tell that you know james gunn did those movies and that's his stuff 100 uh, percent just as if he had written and directed something else, but yeah, it just really depends. And like I said, it's just good to keep an open mind and watch both kinds. So that way you don't miss out on possibly learning about something that you do like that you wouldn't have had uh, seen otherwise. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense and having access to all these films, it's like, you know, the barrier to entry is so low. If you were around in like the seventies or eighties and you wanted to watch certain types of films, You'd have to go to a specific movie theater, you know, you'd have movie theaters that would show, you know, movies made by the studios and Star Wars and stuff like that. But then if you wanted to watch something that was a little bit more obscure or foreign, uh, you had to go to certain parts of town to be able to watch stuff like that. And I think we live in this amazing age where, you know, you don't have to go hunt these films down as much. You know, and that gives you an option to to watch some of these uh, more obscure films along with these big blockbusters. Correct. Yeah. So that's a good thing. Uh, that's why uh, going through your selection here. So you have really old stuff from the 1920s, but then you also have, you know, Thor Ragnarok. So it's yeah. good to have that mix. That way uh, you can balance it out. Yeah, definitely. The more variety, the better. Yeah, I, I take a lot of my inspiration from a documentary called The Z Channel. Have you ever heard of it? Uh, I think the first part cut off. The oh yeah, audio. so it's what it's a documentary mean? called Z Channel: A Magnificent Obsession. It was produced by IFC in 2004, and it basically is about the Z Channel, which I was totally unfamiliar with. But it was basically a paid cable station in LA in the late 70s, and uh, it was uh, basically HBO before HBO hit the scene. And what they would do is they would actually uh, pay a lot of money to the studios to license films uh, to watch on TV. So it was one of the first channels out there that was actually showing real films and specifically films uncut mm-hmm. and in their aspect ratio and everything like that. And it, uh, it's a documentary about this guy who uh, his name is uh, Jerry Harvey. And he curated uh, this entire channel and he got the old movies with the new movies, the the artistic ones with the schlocky ones and the kind of the B-movie type stuff. And he would curate this crazy lineup. So 
I, I draw a lot of my curation uh, inspiration from that as well, being able to take really great films that are artistically solid, but then also ones that are a little campy and maybe some cult hits and some blockbusters and kind of everything in between uh, to really give you a good sample of what uh, the scope of different movies look like. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to look into that. I've never heard about that, but yeah, definitely an interesting con- concept, so I'll have to write that down. Yeah, definitely. Well, Z Channel. Yeah, it's called the Z Channel, uh, and you'll have access to the collection. So feel free to to stream any of them if if you'd like to. Uh, if you have Apple TV, you can you can pull it up on your TV and stream any of the titles there. Uh, so if you feel like getting lost in anything in the collection, let me know, and you can just go ahead and click and play. Yeah, I'll definitely have to uh, check that out. Yeah, I'm surprised that nobody's ever mentioned that before. So I'll look into it. Yeah, totally. Well, this has been fantastic. I mean, honestly, you have been an amazing guest with such a wide knowledge of film and being able to offer your opinions on things has been uh, super, super cool. So really appreciate you stopping by the podcast and uh, finishing up with this part two here. So is there any way that uh, you would like to connect with people? Uh, yeah. Oh, thank you so much for the invite. It was uh, always fun talking with people because it's not really I don't really know that many people in person uh, to discuss kind of stuff like this so usually the best way to follow what i'm up to um it's through my instagram page so it's also where i post my film photography that i do so it's going to be at filmeski so at f-i-l-m-e-z-k-i awesome awesome well worth a follow i've always appreciated your posts and uh you've got great suggestions too because sometimes there's a movie that's been sitting in my queue for a little while and it's like oh adrian just watched it i gotta go check it out so it's great to sometimes uh, ignite uh, <laughs> something under my butt to be able to actually go watch it. Uh, always appreciate your recommendations, and you're a friend of the podcast, so anytime you want to come back, feel free to, to walk on by. Sounds good. Yeah, I'll be here. And All right. Thanks so much for, again. For yeah, writing. thanks so much for coming by, and uh, you have yourself a good afternoon then. All right, take care, man. Likewise. Yeah. All right, bye. Bye. That was my conversation with Adrian Marcello. I had a great time talking with him, and I enjoyed hearing his perspective on things. So thanks again to Adrian for dropping by the podcast. I'm truly excited to see what projects he'll be cooking up next. The tracks you heard this week were Runway by Silver Richards, Tropics by Miami Vice, and Moonlit Walk by Waterfront Dining. All of these artists are only available on Bandcamp, so feel free to check them out if you'd like to support the art. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for episode number three, where I chat with one of the founders of SF Sketchfest, Cole Stratton. Hope you guys have a great week, and I will see you next time.